feature presentation. I didn't even check what draft it is. I'll cut this part out. What draft is it? It's 110, I think, right? I think so. <laughs> uh, you should leave this in. Podcast. <laughs> Show how the sausage is made. Movie podcast. It is 110. Okay, cool. Uh, three and a two and a. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the 110th episode of the Untitled Movie Podcast. I am one of your hosts, Matt Rohrbeck, alongside. He's allergic to tomatoes, but he is tomato meter approved. Eric Marchin. Happy New Year, Matt. Uh, it's past the seventh. You're not allowed to say that. Oh, really? That there's a rule? Larry, there's Larry, a law? You haven't seen that Curb episode? No. Are I you haven't. caught up on Curb? No, no. Um, Okay. I'm watching Seinfeld, everyone. There's some news. Happy New Year. Um, <laughs> Going back to the five, 90s. Five seasons deep. Um, Happy New Year to you, Eric. Uh, I know we talked a little bit before, and we talk all the time yeah. anyway. This but is just for show. <laughs> yeah, I know, really. We're repeating things we just said. But how are you? I'm good, Matt. I mean, it, 2022 kind of starting out a little bit depressing <laughs> with all those deaths. Um, some of which, I mean... Deaths, lockdowns. Yeah, Ontario is in a lockdown but it isn't because like there are certain things that are still open like you know it's a lockdown for sure yeah but like churches are at like 50 percent capacity which i don't understand because if you believe in jesus you can't get covid (laughs) apparently um yeah so we're we're at a a place right now where it kind of feels like 2020 is repeating itself and you even mentioned you know in a tweet that it's like 2020 part two um, 2022 yeah so, yeah so it's 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 been a little <laughs> bit discouraging and and the motivational factor to do a new episode of the regular show uh has not really you know sparred us to do any interest in in recording that but also on top of it even just like covering regular stuff because we're going to have to be more creative in the next month or so um depending on when theaters open again because we will not have a review of scream coming out this week we probably will not have uh anything in terms of january releases other than stuff that's available to stream so the tragedy of Macbeth will be uh, a review but um other than that we're going to be a little bit more um creative with you know maybe reviewing uh yellow jackets season one after the uh season one finale is 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 released and um yeah so that it is what it is bear with us i know everyone's in the same boat so uh we definitely want to do an episode per week of this show we just kind of took last week off because um you know we i I think this i guess this is our first episode of the new year but after that uh most anticipated uh episode which i thought was a great episode you guys should go check out it's the last episode we did the 22 most anticipated films of 2022 um yeah and then our last review was cobra kai at the end of uh december cobra kai 4 which i am rewatching all of cobra kai from the beginning as well um but yeah i i think you nailed it eric like what we won't have many new release reviews in january other than some of the streaming stuff that you mentioned and we even have reviews banked or movies we saw long a while ago that we're now holding until they kind of either have a VOD review or it, we're in a tricky thing. Cause we're an internet podcast that's available worldwide. You know, we, you know, we get an email every week of where we're charting and things like that. And many times we're, we're so hot in, in Portugal right and, now. Yeah. Like, like all over the world. Right. And so it's not necessarily like we're only, we should only be focusing on Ontario theaters, but sometimes we, 
have to based on what access we get based on our region right yeah so even though we're available to everyone and we have a lot of us listeners and and things like that too like unfortunately we can't cover something like scream because or the 355 yeah (laughs) yeah um with the embargoes up on that which so we can talk about it but we all have a review (laughs) it's it's real bad um it's definitely january um and we will have a full review of that closer to when, you know, theaters are back open here and, and knock on wood, it's at the end of January, but probably not either. Like I'm worried that we're going to miss out on Jackass and who knows what else. And like, One of our most anticipated um, films of 2022. I know, I know, I know. Spoilers. Um, so yeah, you know, like Eric mentioned, we watched, uh, we are both caught up on yellow jackets. There's one more episode next week, uh, the finale. So I think we'll just hold our thoughts on that until, um, then, and we'll just do a full review of the first season. Um, but yeah, I've been watching a lot of TV, uh, movie watching has kind of slowed down at like after the Christmas movie and the, and the rush for, uh, uh, voting for the critics choice awards, like the nominations. But I did watch licorice pizza again with Nevis. um, and I did watch the Harry Potter reunion, which you can log as a film on Letterboxd, but it's not really a movie. Those are like the only two movies I've watched uh, this year, 10 days into this here new year. But uh, yeah, we'll probably do more TV reviews, whatever. Um, Book of Boba Fett, we'll do maybe the yeah. first three episodes of that. Uh, I think the first half makes sense after watching the first two. Like I can see why they didn't give it to critics. Not that it's bad. It's just... I think like there's not much to go off of yet and we're two episodes into it, but, um, and it's hard to even still know where the series is going or what it's doing. But, um, yeah, I think after next week we'll do a first half of the season look, and then maybe we'll revisit that at the end of the season and things like that. But, um, out of housekeeping, that's probably how the next little while is going to go. But I mean, speaking of this lockdown, like, yeah, it just, it, it kind of feels like, the beginning of 2020 all over again, right? Like that March to the summer territory where we were kind of in like a, a shit, it's bad. Everything's getting shut down. Things are getting delayed. Um, it it seems like studio to studio, it's just everyone's taking a different approach, right? Like it looks par- like Paramount's just kind of marching through with both Scream and, and Jackass. Um, and it seems like uh, Disney's just going to dump Death at the Nile uh, in February, but then they punt turning red to uh, Disney Plus, uh, and that's in March, even after Death of the Nile in February. So, Which is also um, disappointing. I understand it because, you know, the 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 main demographic of of you know of that fan base is is kids, and a lot of kids that are like you know two to five or six might not be vaccinated yet. So releasing it on Disney Plus, but even just releasing it without like a premium, I, I feel really bad for Pixar. And to be honest, the Turning Red was one of our uh, you know most anticipated films of the year, and it would have been nice to see Domi Shi's film on the big screen especially because it takes place in toronto so um you know i'm still hoping that like a light box premiere or something like that could possibly happen here depending but... on where we are when we when we get to march mm, because again yeah. it's so it's so up in the air right now to, to your point we're in that kind of like limbo stage where it's like you just have to kind of take it day by day and and you know like 
we live in Ontario and movie theaters are closed. So there are no press screenings. And again, you know, certain films we do not have access to uh, at the moment as much as we want to cover it. And, and I'm sure we will when it comes to even like, you know, if, if we miss scream theatrically, we'll probably review we'll have a review streaming. Right. Yeah, or in February yeah. if, if theaters open back up or something like that. Ironically, what's weird about this whole thing is that we could drive an hour and 45 minutes to Buffalo, New York and go see Scream this weekend or go do whatever. And like that's just kind of bizarre to me. Like they they did get rid of the same day you didn't have to test if you went over the border. You could come back. Um, you do now have to test no matter what if you go over the border, uh, PCR tests. So it makes it a little bit more complicated. And I'm not saying that you, you should do this anyway, or I was going to do it. But I did look into it because I was like, if I could, like, you know, I, I wearing a N95 mask and things like that. And I know a lot of people are mad about theaters closing again in this lockdown because there's, um, and we've gone through the gambit of, you know, when this first happened, we uh, we talked about the safety in theaters compared to, I don't know how you feel now, Eric, but I do think it's a good thing, but I'm also kind of torn on everything. I think we're just all just kind of exhausted at this point. Like, I think if they probably kept up with everyone wearing their mask and social distancing, you probably could have had theaters even at 50% or something like that. But um, who am I? I'm not a health professional but sometimes i wonder if the people running this thing are either <laughs> so i don't know man it's it's difficult but and it's a bummer that theaters are closed again because i was uh we were finally it felt sort of normal to go to the movies again um but even spider-man like i remember going to that vip screening and you went to one on christmas eve yeah. and you said landmark you talked about it on the last episode that um they were pretty good about you know because that was when we knew everything was going to shut down in like a week or so, or there was rumors of it, right? Yeah. But at Spider-Man, it was like VIP theater. Everyone's having dinner during the movie, taking their mask off. And like, you know, again, I don't think that there's any concrete proof that there's been huge transmission uh, through movie theaters or anything like that. But then I'm also just like, I don't think we have hard proof where it's where people are catching it. Like, I don't think anyone knows. It's just like you saw everything open back up and then cases started uh, going back up with uh, Omicron. Um, anyway, we don't have to dwell too much on that. When it comes to uh, what you've been watching, Eric, we talked a little bit before and we mentioned some TV. I'll have quick thoughts on Boba Fett before a, a full review. I'm a little mixed on it and I tweeted this out being like, I like a lot of the present day, I guess, present day from his perspective, not necessarily, you know, Star Wars is all over the place, but um, stuff in Boba Fett, I don't love um, any of the flashback stuff. And I know you've seen a bit of it in that first episode, Eric, but like they go way more into it in that second episode and I get what they're trying to do. I just feel like the pacing is so off and strange when like of not intersplicing the flashbacks throughout the whole episode and just doing this like large chunk at the present at the beginning for like 10, 15 minutes and then 30 minutes or 20 more minutes flashbacks. And they're just like almost split into half or like, it's just these giant chunks. And I feel like it really breaks up the pacing of the show. And I, um, 
And I just think like Boba Fett was never my favorite Star Wars character. Like, and we joked so about cool that he was always. He looks super dope, or he did. Uh, <laughs> and uh, but he was always kind of a chump, right? Like he didn't really do anything in the original trilogy, and then he kind of goes out like like he's the butt idiot. of a joke, like, yeah, yeah, and, or the and, burp of a joke. And in, in and case I know everyone liked him, but I think some of that mystery was partly why people like enjoyed that character so much so the more you've got of him and i know we've got some young boba fett in both the prequels and the animated stuff and um you know whatever uh, you want to say about the prequels but um i just feel like him without his mask on and seeing Tamora morrison who i like he's a good actor but like um him doing this the boba fett voice and having these veneers in and he's got these like big white chompers and just and he looks like a uh like a baby in this onesie like a, a giant man baby in this onesie and all these flashbacks and i'm just like this is i don't know there's something off about this that i just do not love and like i get the showing kind of a different side to the tuscan raiders and trying to uh, show different parts of the Star Wars universe and give them a bit more depth rather than being kind of these cliches and stuff. I kind of like that, but it's just the way that it's executed. Uh, I'm not in love with, but some of the present day storyline I think is cool with him trying to take over um, Jabba's throne. Like that's a really, really cool idea. And, um, and him going through Tatooine and, and Mos Espa and, and trying to, you know, plant his foot down as the, the head of this, you know, this crime syndicate is, is kind of interesting, but I just feel like, um, and some other people have said this too, like we learned everything we needed to know about Boba Fett returning in that, in the couple episodes of Mandalorian through subtext or through his clothing or the weapon he was using and things like or that. Or his like, fighting style. It's fighting style. And, and in, and I think we got enough of that there, but it's the Star Wars problem of having to show you how everyone got everything or did anything or how everything connects. They can't just let you kind of go, Oh, I think that's probably how he did that. And then you can kind of fill in the gaps and you go, Oh, he's, why is he acting like a Tuscan Raider? Oh, it's probably, you know, because when he got out of the Sarlacc pit, he, uh, you know, whatever, whatever you can fill that in and you don't need to know every minute detail of how he got the staff and how he got his robes and how like, it's a Star Wars thing. They did it in Solo. They've done it in the prequels. It's like we, every little Easter egg or thing you've been asking about, we're going to answer it. And sometimes the answer is worse than what is in your head. And sometimes you don't even need the answer because you can kind of fill in the gaps yourself. So they're just telling you a lot of stuff you either already know or you can kind of assume. So when you see it, it's just not that interesting. Um, so I'm struggling like it, it is Mandalorian adjacent. And I, again, I do like that present day stuff and there's some cool stuff in episode two with the, with some, you know, new characters or they bring in characters from other parts of the star Wars universe that I, I, I kind of like, but um, I'm, I'm not like excited for the next episode and that's a bummer. And like star Wars is in a weird spot. So, yeah, I, I I'm pretty much in an agreement to the point where I haven't even watched episode two yet. Um, and I actually liked Boba Fett quite a bit as a kid um, and always just like the design and look. But I, I felt like, to your point, when you explain away the mythology and the world building that is set up in exposition or sort of anecdotally, 
it just feels like it takes away any mystique that these kind of exactly you know smaller supporting characters have mm-hmm. and you know the, with with George Lucas's re-edits and and revisions that kind of took away from it the prequels you know with him as the young boba fett like even in that first episode when you see the shot from attack of the clones again of him taking the jango fett helmet and putting it next to his head i always laugh at that because like i think like oh jango fett's head is gonna fall out of the helmet because mace windu cut it off like right during the someone pointed out that in that sequence even in the prequels maybe lucas added this later but you see the shadow of the head falling out of the helmet like after it's cut off oh. so his head's not actually in there. so now it's been retcons okay. <laughs> yeah i guess like because yeah, it, yeah. to me it always looked like he cut it off like like clean and the off head the was neck still in it, there yeah right? yeah and it would have been funny when he's holding that and it just comes out it's like dad uh yeah but there's some cool stuff there of like exploring like you know your dad who looked exactly like you because you're a clone of him and like there's some interesting stuff there that i just feel like they're not going to they might get into because they showed that flashback, but I don't know. But another thing that you brought up just in terms of the story being off, I even think the aesthetic is off quite a bit. Like you have the Gamorrean guards, you have a Max Rebo like character. Cause remember Max Rebo does die on the, uh, the skiff uh, when it explodes at the end. So that's what people were questioning being like, did he survive or is that just a different person of the same race or not person, different creature of the same race? I think it'd be the, a different creature, but you look at the designs of all of these creatures. They almost look like the knockoff versions that are really good knockoff versions, but still there's sure. something a little bit off with the look. And again, you know, you're not going to dig up a, a a costume that was made in 1983 and, you know, sure. try to make it work again. But it just, it does almost feel like everything is just off so much that it's not even necessarily Star Wars. It's like the dollar yeah. store version of Star Wars. And that yeah, kind of takes I can't you even out put, of it. I can't even put my finger on it because partly I like that they're using you know, silly costumes that look like they're ripped from the seventies or something like that. But then that aesthetic doesn't necessarily work with the stagecraft thing that they're doing where, you know, uh, did you watch any of the behind the scenes of the Mandalorian season one or two? Like when they showed you the new thing that Lucasfilm uh, built that uses like unreal engine yes. video game engine. <clears throat> so I think that is really cool, but I've noticed it even more in Mandalorian that I think it looks ugly as shit. And, and like, there's something like, and don't get me wrong, Marvel guilty of uh, bad green screen or blue screen, like tons of movies are, are guilty of this where the lighting never matches the background or you can see that they're like Thor Ragnarok, one of my favorite MCU movies, I think looks like absolute dog shit a lot, a lot of the times because you have just these whole these CG backgrounds and you can clearly tell that they're all standing in front of a, a green screen. Like there are some shots of uh Cape Blanchett in that, that just look like just awful. And, and in this, I like the idea of this stagecraft thing where you're mixing practical sets with a pre-rendered background that's shot in 360 degrees where the camera moves with it. So the perspective uh, stays the same, but then, what you're talking about, Eric, with the the costumes or the puppets and things like that mixed with Boba Fett. And there's this weird, like, I don't think they've completely nailed that perspective thing that I'm talking about, where you can kind of clearly see which elements are the set and which ones almost look like, you know, uh, when they used to use painted backgrounds and stuff. 
like it almost looks like a painted background because it's like pre-rendered and that can be cool, but I don't think it looks very cool in this. Like there is a way to do it properly. And I actually think Mandalorian did it pretty well, but those cities and, and, you know, places he went to did feel a little empty still. Um, but there's something off here with the perspective of seeing Boba Fett, seeing these practical sets, and then you can almost see the flat screen bus behind them or like the LED screen. And it's almost like if you know it's there, you can kind of see where it breaks and, and shows you that stagecraft kind of thing. So I don't think they've completely nailed it yet, which is why I think people like Marvel haven't started using it yet or or other things. And I'm sure they will eventually once they kind of get that technology down. Um, and I do think it is still the future. It's very, very cool. But yeah, I agree with you that there's just something and I can't even, I guess I just put it into words, but like um, there is just something off. And like, I, I think the pacing is off and uh, Tamora Morrison and I, I like, again, his perfect white veneers. Like I hate pointing out like a look, but I'm like, why does Boba Fett have these teeth? Well, especially <laughs> when he's covered like, in sand yeah. and bruises and, and scars mm -hmm. and like, yeah, it's like that Hollywood thing of like when you're watching a, a period piece, sure. um, whether it be set like in, you know, medieval times or, you know, uh, like anything that's like before the, the 20th century. Gotta have nice teeth. Exactly. And it's, and it, it doesn't work because it's not accurate to the historical depiction of what dentistry was like, which there was none at those times. And it almost is like that where you're watching him and it's, you're thinking like, how, how, how are his teeth so beautifully white you know against like a backdrop that is you know so harsh but also he hasn't had any access to uh toiletries or, or utilities that can provide that like it, it would and those are silly things but yeah but because they're brand new veneers and i can always tell it's like you know people can tell when someone's wearing a wig and i mean these are hard to miss i think veneers are are hard to miss in general, like I, I remember Roman Reigns in the WWE got them pretty recently. And there there could be I just think of reasons. Matt Dillon and, and um, uh, there's something about Mary. <laughs> sure. Yes. And like and, and sometimes it can be used for comical effect and sometimes it's a health reason. So I never want to like poke fun at it or anything because there are a multitude of reasons people get veneers. And maybe it's just a self-conscious thing. You don't like your teeth. You want to get veneers. Power to you. Um, but it's always sometimes so noticeable because it just does look like someone's wearing teeth over their teeth. And then especially when it's Boba Fett and he's unmasked for 60% of the show when he's wearing this dirty onesie, like the penguin in Batman returns. And I'm just he looks like, like a giant baby uh, at times. He does. And I kept tweeting that and I'm like, this needs to get more traction than it's getting because he looks like a giant baby. And like, it's something about, you know, and I like them humanizing him a bit more or, you know, him finding Eric, you haven't watched the second episode, but essentially what they're doing is like trying to show, now when he wants to rule with respect instead of just brute force or whatever, like Java did or fear, um, he learned to kind of, you know, uh, live with the Tusken Raiders and accept them and, and, you know, a little bit of humanity to Boba Fett. And I'm like, I get it. We have, it's the classic thing of like the anti-hero or the, you know, the villain, um, solo movie. Aha. Uh -huh. Um, but you have to kind of humanize them or make them, you know, make you want to cheer for them. But I don't know. I wanted like a dark, gritty, like slimy, uh, 
you know, a gangster, you know, seedy underbelly of the Star Wars universe thing. And like part of the show is that. And I just feel like the other half, I'm like, I get it. He got out of the Sarlacc pit. You showed me that. And even that was underwhelming. Oh, <laughs> where I'm like, that was so like, disappointing. Like that was the thing I was most excited about watching. And I liked aspects of it, but it just, it just, it, again, it all feels off. And going back to, you know, the innovation of, Star Wars. Star Wars has always been guilty of this where like, yeah, you know, Lucasfilm has has always been sort of a trailblazer when it comes to new technology and yeah. adapting early on. But also when you're the first to do it, it doesn't necessarily mean you're the best because technology is still evolving and it might not work as well as if you've had time to really adapt with it and sort of augment it into, you know, the the series. And you look at like the even though you know phantom menace is not a great movie but you look at how much of a decline there is visually speaking from that movie to attack of the clones with both the cgi and a lot of green and blue screen backdrops and attack of the clones and like shooting it digitally you know lucas became so lazy and dependent on you know the technical aspects to get a lot of the film finished in post-production of both attack of the clones and revenge of the sith that you can clearly see that there is a drop-off from phantom menace and it is really an eyesore now when you're you know re-watching them in 4k or because those were pretty much Plus. all blue screen yeah like you see the behind the scenes and it's literally floor is blue screen all around them is blue screen and how the, the only C- thing... how the cgi characters yeah. as well inter- like when like that mm-hmm. dax character hugs obi-wan yeah. it just and he's it, just holding his arms out. Yeah, yeah it just it doesn't look real and and not that like you know these characters look real but at least with some practical effects and and you know jim henson-esque makeup and costumes at least it there was a tactile quality to it where it, it's so interesting thinking like again always worth to embrace innovation and thinking about like someone like Robert Rodriguez, who's a guy that cuts corners wherever he can. That's why they hired him. (laughs) But it's also strange because, you know, battle angel. And I guess maybe it's because James Cameron had such a, uh, a, a hand on that one or a hold on it that i movie, still think james cameron ghost directed that movie that, that movie specifically looks like what i want boba fett to be like it has yeah. that gritty scumminess and it still in, has a lot of cgi and it doesn't look real but there was something about that movie that like when you read tales from jabba's palace you know the extended universe book and and you have this vision of like what that could be you know, like that's what you're thinking, oh, the book of Boba Fett is going to take from. And then you're watching it. And again, it just the whole time you're you're just thinking to yourself, this isn't working like this just not this doesn't even feel really like a Star Wars movie. This feels like I know like another studio saw Star Wars and is competing with them with their knockoff version <laughs> of it. it. And that's harsh. And I pretty much agree with you. Like it, it to me, it's like still st- Star Wars, so I guess like I am gonna wake up on Wednesday and watch the new episode. But like, it's a bummer for me to kind of say that I'm sort of I am in that same boat where it just uh, I think they're just in a weird transitional phase where they're still trying to figure this shit out. And like, this does very much feel like a ooh, Pedro Pascal signed on to The Last of Us and whatever, and we can't have him for another year because he's doing that. Uh, we got to fill the, the gap with something. Well, what's like Mandalorian adjacent? 
a guy wearing Mandalorian armor. People like that. So let's bring back this character and then give him his own series where it's just like, all right, we're two, we're a third of the way through right now. I'm like, it's still too early, I guess, to really go, what is this show? Um, You kind of get a, a better glimpse at that in the second episode, but even the action feels weirdly off and like, um, yeah, it just doesn't have that like specialness that Star Wars should have. And I don't know, you know, I'm excited to see what the Obi-Wan uh, series are. We brought up Acolyte last week and, and different things like that. Cause I think we had a, a similar Star Wars talk. We might've even talked about the first episode of Boba Fett. Maybe we just talk about this on these shows. And then when the whole series is done, maybe we do a review, but we'll see. Um, yeah, I don't know. The movie side is even more complicated. So we'll, who knows when we're getting a new star Wars movie, but that's maybe a good thing. Give us a break from, yeah. You know, the, the heart grows fonder, you know, when, when being absent from something you love, love. And and I think taking that time to kind of maybe reassess where to go with the series is probably for the best, but to your point, like even thinking of like, the Mandalorian in those two seasons, it's almost, it's, it's almost like the book of Boba Fett is uh, the fantastic beasts of uh, the star Wars universe where it's just a, a, a killing placeholder. time until they can do curse child. Yeah. yeah. Until they <laughs> can get back just... to the Mandalorian. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I absolutely agree with that. And um, you know, I'm still, I hope it changes my mind by the end of it. Like we're only two episodes in, there are some cool things I'm just like, how much of this flashback stuff are we going to get? Because it's not. And I, I we're. I know some people who really loved it, and um, I'm like, all right, power to you. And I think that's, you know, everything's subjective. So it's like everyone wants something different from Star Wars, and I'm glad some people are getting something out of it. I'm just like, whew, these flashbacks are just not working for me. Um, on the other side, Eric, you want to talk some Seinfeld, or do you have something you want to talk about? No, I mean, I, I, you know you mentioned it off the top. We've been both watching um, yellow jackets. And so we'll have a review of season one uh, when it's finished. So we'll kind of save our, our thoughts on that, but it has been fun and kind of, it's going to be interesting having that conversation because I guess I can say this. I feel that the show would have been better suited as a mini series than a series, because I can now see where they're going to kind of leave it in kind of continuing into season two. Yeah. And yeah, again, we'll talk about it more then, but uh, yeah, you have uh, finally uh, dived deep into Seinfeld, which is now available on Netflix in, in Canada. I'm not sure if it's available elsewhere around the world, but I think it's on Netflix worldwide. Okay, that's, I think yeah. that was like a, one of their big, huge pickups after they lost the office and different things like that. Because I think a huge part of Netflix's thing is that people just like comfort shows that they watch that are older shows. And I know that there's a huge focus on their original content, but a lot of people use Netflix to just watch old shit. Um, and I know it was on Crave for a while, but I never dove in there. Um, but now that it's on Netflix, um, it's one of Nevis's favorite shows of all time. I know it's one of your favorite sitcoms and shows of all time. Um, I never got it. Like when I was younger, like I just, it was nothing, not something my parents watched. I had a couple friends, Mike Halkew and Mike Muntz uh, that loved Jerry Seinfeld and loved Seinfeld. So I remember seeing a lot of it when I was younger 
uh, but I watched a lot of stuff like out of context. Uh, so like I knew like the big beats in the show. I know how it ends. I know all that kind of stuff. The um, pop culture aspect of it. Yeah. The, and it's hard to miss life. that stuff. Yeah. Right. Like, and then you go back and you do a little research or you watch that one episode. But what I'm finding is that uh, one, it took me a long time to, for it to finally click with me. And Nevis told me that and other people have told me that. And, you know, it's the classic thing when, when people are telling you to watch their favorite shows, but they're just like, okay, get through whatever. And for Seinfeld, Nevis was like, I like a lot in season two and three, but get to season four. And I'm like, Jesus Christ, I got to watch three seasons before this gets good. Um, and I, I kind of agree with that where I watch season one and I'm like, this is just, I, this is exactly what I thought this was going to be. And I do not really like it. Uh, most of season two, I'm, I was sort of in that same boat where I'm like, I'm in, I'm sort of enjoying this, but like, I don't know if I like it. Um, I'm just like, I'm kind of just watching it without having any real opinion of it at all. Um, and then in season three, I started to see like, there's episodes here and there where I'm like, okay, I'm starting to get it. I really liked that episode or like I'm starting to see them kind of find their groove of going, knowing who these characters are and how to portray them. And then same with the writing of going, finding what the show is, which, you know, the joke is about nothing. And I like that whole plot line in season four about them pitching the meta show within a show. Um, and I'll get to that. Uh but I, I liked that originally. I'm like, oh, okay, it's about Jerry Seinfeld finding material for his act through his friends and stuff like that, which is exactly what the show is. And I read that, that that's how they pitched the show. Uh, but I'm like, I don't know. I just like everyone's fine, um, but I'm not super into this. And then I got to season four and exactly like Nevis said – um, within the first couple episodes, I think of season four, which is the first season where they kind of, the show is very episodic, but they started to bring back characters. They started to kind of have a through line of like referencing things, which is why I'm glad I watched the first couple seasons because even Kramer referencing the jacket he got from his mom's, uh, ex-boyfriend that he stole from him or whatever, which was in season two and he's referencing it in season four and, and, or Art Vandalay like first comes <laughs> up, like, like George's alias comes up in season one or two, right. Of him just lying out of his teeth. And like, so I'm glad I watched those first two seasons, but now that I uh, powered through season four is when I really started to get hooked where I'm like, Ooh, I want to watch like five episodes of Seinfeld right now. And um, I powered through season four and I just thought like it was so great to kind of have that through line, but still be very episodic. And you can even tell that they were getting more confident in it. The audience started to really come aboard then. And like um, the annoying sitcom-y things of everyone cheering when Kramer came in and I'm like, Everyone needs to calm down. I love Kramer too. He's the second best character on the show after George. But like, I, I hate like laugh tracks. I can deal with, but like the cheering every time he came on screen, I'm like, all right, I, we get it, guys. He's gonna burst through the door and steal a bunch of paper towels and an orange and then leave. <laughs> like it's great. It's, it, it's yeah, it's great. And the mix of humor of like, you know. um, everyday situational humor mixed with that kind of slapsticky stuff that Kramer brings, which is very 
you know, is it like vaudeville kind of like, you know, old school kind of uh, three stooges style kind of fumble around the place or anytime Kramer slips and falls or bumps into something's really funny. Um, and then it gets dark in places, which I wasn't expecting. And some of the humor is really dark. Some of it is dated, but also progressive for the time. Like it's almost like Larry David and Jerry Seinfeld knew like, Hey, yeah, we can joke about anything really, but we will kind of acknowledge what we're doing at certain times. Like even the gay panic episode with, uh, like Jerry and, and George not wanting people to think that they're a couple and like the continuous of not that there's anything wrong with that throughout the whole episode. Like I thought was a good way to kind of not be incredibly dated, um, with stuff like that and kind of make it work, um, within the context of those characters just not wanting people to think that they're gay, but while still being funny, but then also not being totally offensive or off-putting. And then there are certain things that don't hold up, whether it's like, uh, you know, Jerry and George looking at uh, uh, Bob Balaban's daughter's cleavage and she's 15 or Played whatever, by Denise right? Which Richards. is like, oh, was it? Mm -hmm. Okay. Because she's only in that like one scene. Um and that was a little like certain things like that. Like I get, you're still kind of poking fun at it. And I think Seinfeld will go to places that some other shows wouldn't, but um, that's obviously a sign of the times and different things like that. So you see certain things like that. And it's interesting watching it, you know, with a 2021 lens, but I think a lot of it holds up. A lot of it is hilarious. Seeing those episodes that I mentioned, like in, in context, like, the puffy shirt, uh, the contest, um, uh, the junior mint, uh, like certain things that I knew of and knew of those references, but like hadn't watched those episodes all the way through or now watching them in context of knowing these characters and liking these characters has been like a lot of fun. So um, I just watched a whole bunch of season five last night. I watched the Briss. I watched what else? Oh, with I the Moyle? <laughs> the Moyle. Yeah. Uh, I'll go to Netflix and try to find out, but it's also just um, interesting to think like how much reverent and memorable material is in each episode. Like it's sometimes funny to think like, oh, like this one episode has two or three, you know, subplots that are just as enjoyable to follow yeah. along with then like the main sort of uh, arc of that one episode and um yeah it's one of those shows that is like it truly is a comfort show and like when you go back and watch it yeah to your point there are things that don't hold up but i think in some ways it also works still because they are portrayed as unlikable people yeah. Um, and like Jerry's neuroticism when it comes to like him continually dating a woman every yeah. week, like that becomes a joke as well. And like he has no emotions or affection to anybody or, you know, uh, George being his own worst enemy most of the time. Uh, Elaine also kind of being a bit of a, an ass. Like, you know, they're, they're, they're likable characters in the sense that you enjoy watching them and hanging out with them and they're relatable because they're flawed. But they're also people People, but because they're flawed, I think you can understand, like, with, you know, the gay panic episode, like, why they are the way they are, even yeah. though they're not maybe, you know, it, maybe it's not as regressive as some other shows or yeah. movies of the time tackling it. It, it. it does it in a way that is, um, you know, Jerry Seinfeld's always been very careful when it comes to how he kind of 
tackles maybe at the time taboo subjects or controversy and like it's just interesting to like go back and like watch some of those episodes like even the uh the aids walk episode when kramer doesn't want to want to wear the ribbon and yeah you know things like that like it's and then the one with the nazis too and i'm like yeah like uh, where yeah, george is like mistaken as like the yeah, uh the, the, the aryan cult leader <laughs> like it's just like it's all it's like oh my god i did not expect this to go there but it is very funny and i think you were asking me I, that episode i loved because i was just i think that was one of the episodes where it finally kind of clicked with me where i'm like oh this is absurd they're all terrible um, but they are, it's like red rocket, like watching someone who's just like always either making, they don't always make the wrong choice. Like they're not horrible people. No, like they're, just said, they're, people. they're just people. They're just, they're just people and they're not great people, but like, they're just being themselves. And like, it just makes for such enjoyable television and it gets more and more absurd without feeling like. Like it's absurd and it's that, you know, classic Larry David, now that I've watched a lot of Curb, like ironic kind of things happening to people or like um, – uh, Well, him being based on George, right? And Larry yeah, David exactly. actually being yeah. in a couple episodes here and there. Or God, being, he's so funny. Uh, the you always hear of, his voice. Yeah. yeah. Um, you always hear the voice. I love the movie episode I was telling you. Like I was like, oh, Elaine maybe has some – I love Elaine too. She's great and there's not enough of her in the show. Um, but maybe she gets more later, but there is a, a good amount and she's always great when, um, when she has something to do, but I loved how much she takes the movie seriously and cares about the experience and stuff like that. That episode was great. Um, I, what I watched yesterday, the masseuse, the barber, the non-fat yogurt, the lip reader, uh, with, uh, Marley, uh, Matlin, um, have you watched the one um, – oh, what was it? Uh, I was going to ask you about – there's – have you watched the one where George has the parking spot in uh, at yeah, the hospital? Yeah. That is amazing. Yeah, yeah. Like that to me is, really is, is – it sums up George so well. It's like yeah. let the baby see this – like the, the first great yeah. thing in the world is this beautiful parking spot. And then like that person jumping and destroying his car with yeah. the suicide and then him trying to like uh, get the hospital to pay for the car. <laughs> and that's what I mean with, with certain – subjects that they weren't afraid to kind of poke fun at but yeah. never felt like you know there were there are some jokes here and there like a weird thing with larry david like um a lot of fat shaming stuff in the show like they really don't like fat people or being fat is the worst thing in the world that comes uh, up being, in the in the last and, episode does it and yeah. it and it it even recently in curb your enthusiasm like which is a show that literally premiered in 2021, this newest season. Uh, there was an episode there with a heavy set um, man who was working on Larry's roof. And Larry's like, I don't want him to work on my roof because he thinks he's going to fall through or whatever. Cause he's bigger. And like the end of the episode, the guy falls through the roof onto Larry's Larry's bed as he's like sleeping or, or something like that or as he's just lying there. And it's just like, you get that throughout the show, which has been the one through line that I'm just like, they do not like, they think being fat is the worst thing in the world. And they just like that continuously comes up. And that's the one thing I don't think has aged super well is a lot of the fat shaming stuff that um, like even recently with the non-fat yogurt was all about that. Right. Yeah. Because they wanted to test that it had fat in it because Kramer 
you know, not having a filter just tells Jerry and Elaine that they've been gaining weight. Right. And uh, like, that's not the worst. I I don't think like, I think today we've gotten better with things like that and being body positive and, and, and not saying that you can't have, you know, um, not everything has to be PC. And I, I feel like a lot of this show isn't politically correct, but it does it in a way that is funny and doesn't feel like it's just being mean. You're laughing um, at the at the four yeah. main leads and not the people yes. that they're interacting with. Again, like it goes back to like with Jerry dating people. Like he always finds this hang up on each yeah. person he's dating, whether it be you know the man hands episode or having got uh, the two, I have the two face episode. It, like it, it, there's it's 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 it ultimately goes back on him. Like he's the guy that can't like. Yeah, you know, he 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 can't just put his own weird hangups aside and just go on with his life, and that's kind of the joke with him is that, you, you know, like he's a guy that is always so judgmental and yet you know doesn't look at himself. But I also love a lot of the supporting characters that you know frequent. Oh my god, the, the Newman scene. is amazing. Newman, Dude, Wayne Knight, Newman, is the best. Wayne Knight is is incredible. You know, when when the male centric episodes of him and Kramer going off and doing their things, or like there's an episode where Wilford Brimley pops up in, in the last episode uh, or one of the last episodes. Um, and then you have people like Putty, who I think is amazing. Patrick I haven't got Warp- to Putty yet. Patrick I'm, Warburton I'm is incredible yeah. um, on yeah. the show. Jerry Stiller. Uh, Jerry Stiller. I've seen a lot of, and he's great. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah George is living with his parents right now, which I, um, George is just the best. Like he's also the worst, but the best, like I just, it, it's so funny. And I, I was like, how old are they all supposed to be when this show is starting? And I'm like, Oh man, George is supposed to be 32 and like in the second <laughs> season or whatever when I'm watching. And he was like, but, um, I just, I think it's so funny seeing him at his point of his life there. And like, and you said like all these people are flawed people. And I think what's great about Seinfeld is like, no one's perfect. And we all have these different tendencies and, and things that we don't even like about ourselves that we do or, or, and I, I, there is a lot of relatable stuff in all four of these characters that I think both is like, Oh no. (laughs) And like very makes it even funnier. Right. Like I, I, there is a lot of George, that I see in myself, which isn't a great thing to say because he's such a neurotic, like uh, kind of pathological liar. And just like, it just the worst at times. You always but, talk um, about wanting to dress in velvet. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but it's just so funny. And I like even some of the tendencies you don't like in yourself of like being lazy sometimes, or I'm in a job search right now. And I love that he doesn't have a steady job throughout the first four seasons. And he's, um, he has to go live with his parents and all that kind of stuff. It's really, really fun. Cause he's not, and, is he, um, he's not working with Steinbrenner yet, is he? Not yet. Okay. I know of Steinbrenner and I know that he goes to work uh, with the Yankees and stuff like that, but is he working um, with, um, Daniel, uh, Van Braggen's character right now? Um, the, you'd know him if you saw him, he's, he's a character. I'm at actor. the point he, um, got a job at. Uh, a company worked there for a week and then he goes to go work with a different guy pen not no elaine's at pendant publishing um he had, doesn't have a steady job yet yeah. so i don't think so he's still living with his parents and in, in, in interviewing and um uh but man it's it, it is incredibly enjoyable and i'm glad i have so much left because like i'm only i'm on episode 10 of season five and i've heard four five and six are excellent 
TV. I would say I everything up to the last four or five episodes, or like even just like the last two episodes, are yeah. great. I think the last okay, two episodes yeah. they kind of shit the bed a little bit in terms. I of know. I, I think I've even seen the last two episodes out of context, like with Mike or Mike and Mike. Uh, and I know what happens and like, I know people don't love that finale, but um, I'm curious me not having all the baggage and stuff. Cause I know what happens. I'm curious to see when, when I get there, how I feel about it. So, but um, it, it, there is a funny joke that's not included uh, on Seinfeld, but when Jerry Seinfeld, I think was on, yeah, it was on an episode of like SNL and he did a par- parody of like what Jerry would be doing post Seinfeld and it was an episode of Oz, the prison show, okay. and it had yeah. it, like J.K. Simmons was on it. And it was sure, like this yeah. kind of like movie TV segment within the the uh, the episode SNL, of SNL, yeah. and it was pretty good. That's good. I like the and I've seen the whole Curb season when they do the my first exposure to True Seinfeld was a whole season of Curb when he's trying to do the reunion, um, and I do like that season of Curb. So I'm gonna go watch that season of Curb again after I finish um Seinfeld. Um so yeah man I'm I'm enjoying the shit out of it and it's weird that it's taken me this long because I've seen like there's like 11 seasons of Curb Your Enthusiasm now and I've seen the majority of those and I always liked it and people are like it makes no sense that you like Curb Your Enthusiasm but you don't like Seinfeld. And um I'm like I don't know. I just never really gave it a shot. So um during this lockdown has kind of been one of two shows that Nevis and I go back and forth with right now with that and rewatching Cobra Kai. So, um, Cobra Kai has been like a comfort show to us. Season four is out now, everyone. You can check out our review over on untitled, uh, movie reviews. Eric and I did a spoiler free review of season four of Cobra Kai. Scary Terry. Um, He's back. God is the best. And then, um, yeah, it's, it's Cobra Kai rules too, but, um, Seinfeld has been so much fun. Mandelbaum, um, Mandelbaum, Mandelbaum. <laughs> uh, anything you've been watching, dude? Like at the beginning of the year, you said you've been on TV stuff. Yeah, like I mean, I've I've, I've, I've I've reviewed some stuff for Rogers. So, like, I have my review for the Tender Bar, which is George Clooney's follow up to The Midnight Sky, and it's him playing it completely safe. It's basically Dad Rock the movie, especially when it comes to the soundtrack. Um, it's fascinating to watch that movie because even though I don't like we don't like the midnight sky. We've talked about it on on the show. We reviewed the film. I almost appreciated the ambition that was, that Clooney was trying to get at with that film where with the tender bar, it's a more easy watch. It's inoffensive, but it's almost like offensive because it's inoffensive and it's so lazy and like it's cliched riddled and, I think that if Belfast wasn't released this year, it would be a big Oscar contender because it kind of fits within that kind of milieu of like a memoir, even though it's not based on George Clooney, it's based on this author, J.R. Moringer, you know, growing up in Long Island in, you know, the 1970s and, and 1980s and coming of age. But it's just, again, like it, it just takes the e- easiest route to get to where it's ultimately going and you never really get a sense of who the character actually is other than the plot points. And it it just, it, yeah, it just, it just plays it so safe and you're just, it's, it's so toothless at times. And like Affleck, Ben Affleck who plays the uncle is, is good. And it's nice to see that Christopher Lloyd, you know, 
last year got you know some prominent roles in both nobody and and the tender bar but it's just lacking any real personality and again like you even think of like you know ben affleck with live by night that's a movie that doesn't really work but at least the town and argo and gone baby gone feel like they come from somebody you know like from boston but also like they have a vision where clooney's always been this guy where like the beginning of his career he was trying to do a little bit of the steven soderbergh thing with confessions of a dangerous mind then he makes something that kind of fits into his wheelhouse with you know good night and good luck and you know the politician stuff with the ides of march you know based on the play and and a lot of it is all surface level but it kind of works just in its you know like it's it's well made well acted well and entertaining but then he kind of like did like the coen brothers thing with leatherheads which doesn't work and then after that it's just like one generic movie after another and you just yeah, get sick it's a of little it. all over the place really and then he just starts doing kind of vanilla movie he's doing like ron howard style kind of just like, yeah like kind of oh like vanilla pudding like it's just it's fine um it's not incompetent but it's just not great and i I haven't seen tender bar yet so i can't speak on that but uh i totally understand where you're coming from with clooney where i'm like i'm never excited for a george clooney movie like no if george clooney starred i I like him a lot yeah yeah that's what i mean a george clooney directed film i'm not excited for because i like clooney as an actor and i like him as a person like uh it's just whenever i see his name attached to a movie i'm like I don't really have super high hopes. Like at best I'm thinking it's like a three out of five. Like I never feel like it's going to be more than that. And that's unfortunate. Or less if it's the midnight sky, which again, not a very good movie, but I almost appreciated it a little bit more just in terms of, at least it had some ambition and it, and it was a little bit sort of more of a message movie, a more earnest version of like, don't look up, but like watching the tender bar it's it's just so forgettable like it's it's just one of those movies that like again if belfast wasn't released this year it would probably be getting a bunch of nominations and it would be it would be that film that like is the trial of the chicago seven or you know the inoffensive well-made very just okay movie yeah Yeah. that's kind of prompted by awards bait but it is interesting that um you know, this is really getting no traction whatsoever where, you know, Belfast and even Hillbilly Elegy did get some stuff, you know, speaking of Ron Howard, like it does fit within that category of, of films. And it's just like, even the, like there's a voiceover narration throughout the entire movie done by Ron Livingston. And it is so hackney and cliched. And yeah, it, it's like, like just hitting you over the head with what is going on in the scenes. And it's supposed to kind of like create this nostalgic kind of, postcard-esque longing and the one thing that they don't do which i'm actually surprised it's the only thing that they showed any restraint for was they didn't have a song by billy joel who grew up in in long island and you think like every song that they have in the movie you know is again dad rock the film and they don't have that and it's just it's it's very strange and william monahan um wrote the script or adapted the script for this who wrote um the the departed so like you think like okay like you know you have a really good screenwriter here um you have a competent filmmaker uh charming enough subject like this should have just been you know a delight it's not it's 
it's fine, but it's just like it's you you won't by the time next year comes around and we're recording again, I will have completely forgotten about that this film. Yeah, sorry as a yawn. No, that's probably... that's how I felt <laughs> watching the movie. I was just sitting there yeah. and I was like I'm not offended by this movie. I don't think it like overstays its welcome. I just feel that it's kind of spineless. Yeah. No, I I think that there's a reason why I haven't uh watched it yet. Uh, cuz I've had the screener for what feels like 4 months. I have but 3 of like, them. They sent they oh. sent me multiple screeners of the tender bar. Yeah, same with me. I had to snap one in half and throw it out because I'm just like I don't know why I would have just preferred a digital screener too, but um yeah, I've just had no Is it out now yes. on Amazon? Yep. It is. Okay. Um we might get a, to a review, but Eric pretty much just we probably won't. Eric's review right there is what And you can consider. you can listen to my Rogers review as well. Yeah. It's it's yeah. it's fine. <laughs> it's like that's that's my and that's the sum you know summarizing George Clooney's career. I think that Clooney is a guy that is very likable when he's starring in something and working with a really good director. It's exciting. I, I know that, you know, a favorite movie of yours is the descendants. And I really love that movie and that performance as well. I think he's great. in Michael Clayton, I think he's a good producer. I think he I should love maybe, up in the air. Yeah. He's amazing in that. Um, I think that he should maybe just produce and sort of yeah. cultivate talent the way that Brad Pitt's company is, is yeah, doing instead of B, trying yeah. to direct because again, it just, I feels think that's the smartest way, man. Like sometimes you just have to, unfortunately bite the bullet and realize you might not be cut out for something. Right. But like, Even though you're trying uh, as hard as you can to yeah. do it. And you, you know, he'll always get work and he'll always find people to produce his stuff because his, he's George Clooney and like his name alone, even from a director's standpoint will still probably be enough to catapult whatever he wants to do. But, um, but then you get Suburbicon and you're just like, <clears throat> what are you doing? Whew. Yeah. <laughs> uh, um. And that's the thing that's that's so like unfortunate and, and I don't cuz like I again I think George Clooney from everything I've read about him in interviews he seems like a decent enough guy. Super nice guy. Loves Nespresso. But it, there is that kind of like white male thing where like he's continually made bad movies but also continues to get opportunities sure. and because yeah. you, you said you know it's he's 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 a big name he's george clooney he's george yeah. clooney but wouldn't it be great if he could help somebody that maybe yeah. isn't getting those opportunities and and, yeah. and produce again that's why i like plan b brad use Pitt's your company. name for good uh, yeah and brad pitt does a lot of that right yeah where he finds unique talent he finds people whose voices aren't being served enough and like and actually propels that and uses his company for that and yeah, I, I I'm with you. Where I I feel like uh, that would probably be a better use of Clooney's time, <laughs> but um, I don't know. I might watch Tender Bar at some point. I just again, uh, it's probably... perfectly fine. It's one of those. Did it get any Critics Choice nominations? I think Ben Affleck got nominated for. Okay, so I will actor. watch it. Yeah. because I I want to be caught up with all the movies before voting deadline. So I will watch it. But and again, it's hard it. not thinking about Goodwill Hunting while watching it as well, because even though it takes place in Long Island and, and not Boston, but it almost yeah. feels like Matt Damon would have been better in that role if they wanted right. to kind of play up like a meta aspect of like. You know, what if like Will from Goodwill Hunting, you know, didn't pursue academia and kind of just ended up kind of toiling away in, in, in sure. hospitality jobs, but was still kind of self-taught and, and smart. And I think Affleck is good. Like, I think Affleck, like, 
does what is needed to be done with the role and and i also think affleck's a much better filmmaker like even though live by night's not great um at least those three movies those three other films i mentioned are his, pretty good yeah, yeah and and like you get more it's funny it's like so it's the, the reverse of Clooney with him where you know you get more excited when you hear ben when affleck's directing, directing a movie than starring in a film unless it's directed by you know david fincher so it's yeah. like you know these two you know batman are are working together and i mean they i mean Clooney also produced argo and and they won the oscar for best picture for that but it's just funny thinking like that it's like this weird cosm in this in this yeah. sort of collaboration that's funny uh before we get to the best films of 2021 which is is what this episode uh is about we wanted to do most anticipated films last year and we want to do um uh, or the most anticipated films of 2022, which we did last week, and we're doing our best of 2021 this week. Um, I want to talk a little bit about Dexter Newblood, Eric. Yes. Um, because it I... It sounds like a the, last name. Hello, Dexter uh, Newblood. Um, <laughs> please, please. I, my father was Mr. Newblood. I'm just Dexter. <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of what the show is. Um I don't even know how to tackle this, but um, you—I was a huge Dexter fan, and I, I wanted to ask you something the, specifically. Yeah. So, when you first started watching it, you were cautiously optimistic, and you were like, "Okay, like they're kind of, you know, bringing it back to what the series was originally, yeah. and they're trying to kind of maybe retcon some of the stuff that didn't work in those final few seasons." Yeah, they don't necessarily like retcon anything. Um, but recontextualize certain things that you either didn't like in those last few seasons in that final episode in, you know, the latter half of Dexter, maybe even stuff that happens in those first few seasons because Clyde Phillips did come back, who was the showrunner on Dexter for, I think, up until the Trinity Killer season. And then he left and the show kind of went off the rails. Um, And I, I just like, the last few seasons of Dexter just were not very good. And I know some people like certain aspects of them, but like, I, I truly feel you've seen the whole series, right? I have, Eric? I have. Like, and, yeah. and, and to be honest, are you in the same boat? Or? Yes. I, I, I don't even think necessarily like the Trinity killer was John Lithgow. Right. Yeah. So I like that season partly because of John Lithgow. Um, yeah. But even before that, there were sort of moments in season, like after Dokes dies, yeah, which is like season two. I <laughs> which think they the went sh- way too early with that. Yeah, I like think the, the show, show fails. And the show like blew its load way too early. So I think the problem with Dexter, they do that Bay Harbor Butcher season in season two, which should have been a season six storyline or something like that. You needed to keep Dokes around way longer. He was one of and the best then, characters like, on that show. And he was. And they, they, spoilers for the entirety of Dexter. I will not spoil Dexter New Blood for everyone. So if you haven't watched all of Dexter yet and you care, um, come back later. Um, but yeah, we already kind of talked about the dokes thing in, in season two, uh, but the whole Bay Harbor butcher season being that early, it's just like, they were almost like they had something with that first season and they're like, we got to Let's just do this right now. <laughs> and I'm just like, maybe they didn't know how many seasons they would get or, or whatever reason it was, or maybe it was just the best story they had at that time. But the Bay Harbor butcher season should have been in the, final act of Dexter. That should have been one of the things that should have been his downfall. Dokes' death should have been near the end of the series. Like all this kind of stuff um, 
should have been near the end of the show. And then I like the Trinity killer season, but that should have probably come earlier and or, or whatever. There should have been some reorganization. Anyways, Dexter new blood. So everyone hated the finale of Dexter. Everyone lumberjack really didn't Dexter. like, didn't like the last couple seasons of Dexter. So um, the end of Dexter, you know, he drives into a hurricane. People think he, he died. His sister's dead. Um, uh, they had the police captain killed. Um, uh, what was her name again? Uh, LaGuardia. Um, like all, and my problem with Dexter in the last couple seasons is like, it was hard to cheer for him. Right. Because like, I think obviously he, he was not doing great things, but the code and, and only killing bad people were one of the reasons why the show was compelling. And you could follow a show about a serial killer and feel like you could kind of cheer for this guy. Um, I think in the last couple seasons, he was killing worse seasons, people that were worse, right? And he was following yeah, Harry's. He would never rules. kill an innocent person, and he only killed. Uh, he was basically Batman, but with killing. Like it was just like I'll only kill horrible people, and he had to have proof for it, right? Like he wouldn't just kill for killing's sake. And then in the last couple seasons, even Dokes in season two, who he kind of gets killed, right? Like it's he started to become harder and harder to cheer for because it wasn't necessarily the show kind of would get tied into corners or put into corners and not know how to get out of them. And then Dexter would have to kill innocent people or have them be killed by things he did. If, even if it wasn't by his knife and, and things like that. And it became less and less, you know, interesting and harder and harder to cheer for this guy. So by the end of it, I just didn't care. And then, you know, he had basically, I get it. He's a character much like, know spider-man or something like that where the people who know about him or the people that are in his life could be in danger because of the the work he does essentially so i get that there's going to be some collateral damage there but you know there was almost too much or he would go i don't want to be found out so you know what you're gonna have to die like sorry and that's just being like well now i don't i can't really cheer for you because now he's just a serial killer yeah now you're just a serial killer and a hypocrite and i'm just like it's not interesting so that brings me to New Blood, which like I did feel like started pretty strong where I'm like, okay, this is interesting. Like it's weirdly shot in 239. It has a different vibe to it, but it also feels like, oh, we're going to get back to, you know, what Dexter was about in those first couple seasons. And like, uh, but then I think the show, and I haven't tweeted about this show at all because I just, I, I just watched it. Week <laughs> it week just happened. Like it did. And like, I... I let three episodes bank up and I wasn't keeping up with it week to week, but then the last couple episodes I did. And I feel like it has the best and worst elements of Dexter in it. So I feel like there is some interesting stuff. Like it's no longer Harry, the vision that he sees it's Jennifer Carpenter's character, his sister, Deb with the minus the creepy, uh, what are you doing? Step bro. Um, also thinking like Um, in real life, they also got married and divorced. Sure. Yeah. But she's in the show. She's kind of that the hairy, you know, vision that Dexter is seeing now. Um, but what I mean by the best and worst of Dexter, because I feel like it did get back to its roots and in, in what you really enjoyed about Dexter, and and it was interesting stylistically. Where if there were flashbacks to Miami, it would be shot in one eight nine, like the uh, like the original show was. But then this shows in in two three nine, and like the first time he kills again is like a really kind of, you know, he feels like he has to do it, but then like his 
his dark passenger and his urges are back and stuff like that. But then the sh- the worst of Dexter is um the like convenience of all the events that happen. And uh, what's the word that I'm looking for? But like it's just in Dexter there were so many times where it was just felt so unbelievable of the connections between either yeah characters or events or everything is connected or this like and again i um the whole villain of this season the way that that's integrated of, of it it's just like well it seems really silly that he's a bad guy his son is a bad guy and then Dexter's son is involved and he's having dark urges and like, it's just all this ridiculous shit. And then that's kind of the stuff that bogged down Dexter by the end of it is just like people being at certain locations, but being too dumb to figure out what's going on. But then also being in a a specific spot or a specific time or showing up at a specific moment that was very convenient to the plot. And like, and you can just see the writing and like the connecting the dots on things of like, we need everything to connect to have Dexter involved in everything. And, um, and the people in his life be involved in everything. And then that's the kind of shit of the suspension of disbelief where I get, I'm watching a show about, you know, this, you know, a serial killer who only kills bad people or whatever. And that's who's been on the run for 10 years and people think he's dead. But like, it's those kind of things where I'm like, everything doesn't need to be connected and it all just feels too convenient for all of this stuff. And like a little eye rolly when his son is also having dark urges and like all this kind of shit. So I found myself going back and forth of being like, I guess I'm sort of enjoying this, but like not really. And then on top of that, I feel like because they've been off the air for 10 years, they also felt a need to include social commentary on like everything that's happened since it's been off the air. So there's like opioid overdose uh, commentary. There's missing indigenous uh, women. There's, um school uh attacks and this is all in a small town of 2000 people um that he's living in and like there's just every um oh there's a podcaster that comes to town that's doing a murder podcast to investigate is his name podcast uh, no it's not (laughs) her her podcast name is mary fucking kill um of course and um there's just like there's even more but imagine any uh, social commentary of something that we didn't really talk about much uh, when Dexter was on the air, and they're like, "We're just gonna fucking throw it all into this season." To the point so where there's a like, lot of virtue signaling. Then, yeah, and I'm just like, I don't know if you guys needed to include all of this, and maybe pick a focus and pick a lane. And I was always confused by how much time has passed or how much time hadn't passed, and like, um and how involved Dexter's, you know, how Harrison comes back into the series, which isn't a spoiler. Like that's a big part of it. Um, And it just, it all felt a little ridiculous, but then it kind of won me over by the end where the finale, while I don't think it's perfect, um, I thought was as good as it could have been to redeem a lot of the things that I'm talking about and the original ending. Like I do feel like they do a pretty good job of addressing some of the criticisms I had about those last couple 
seasons of Dexter and even some of the things about the character to the point where I actually think, and with all these plot lines that I'm bringing up of feeling like so much was thrown into this season with his son and, and um, why am I blanking on what's his name? Who plays the villain? Clancy Brown. Um, Clancy Brown. And like, that whole thing and just how that's all tied up with like the storyline of the missing women. It's not just indigenous women. It's just missing women in this area. Um, But Dexter's uh, uh, girlfriend is the chief of police and stuff like that. Like, it's all just that silly, but then the way that that all comes together and, and, um, but, Oh, and she goes to like a police conference and Angel Baptista's there. And it's just like, that's the silly convenient stuff where I'm right. like the contrived nature just, of, of yeah, the like, plot being the main motivator compared yeah. to the characters themselves. Yeah. And like, that's the silly stuff that you like, okay, I get it. But like, that just feels really convenient. Um, but then that being said, I thought the finale was satisfying and I thought it addressed some things in an interesting way. I don't think it's perfect. And, I've seen people already get mad at, at at the finale again. And I'm like, you're never going to be happy then if you hated the original ending and you don't like this one. I'm like, what do you want? What do you want? You just want like, yeah. So I, I think that's also the problem though, with legacy sequels and yeah. series and continuations in general, because it's like, how much of it do you take from the original version? Especially if there has been a hiatus or a gap between you know, the original series or film and versus the new one. And then when you're bringing in, you know, we were talking about with Star Wars, with, with the book of Boba Fett, when you, when you bring in certain things and sort of break down the mythology and sort of the minutia of it all, and then you try to interweave it into something that's also supposed to be kind of fresh, you know, it, it kind of feels like it has to adhere to the original material first and foremost. And sometimes there's a lot of fan service when it comes to that. And I, I, I the show that you're, Basically summing up for me, the the way that you're describing this is what those last two seasons of The X-Files were. And The X-Files was never a consistently great show. But The, the reboot ones? Yes, that they yes. Back? So those yeah. last two seasons, like Chris Carter was never a great writer to begin with, but he was a good idea man and, and, and you know, had fun with genre episodes. But when it came to bringing that show back and kind of doing the similar thing of like, okay, how much are we going to kind of, you know, explore a reference from the original series? And then also how much of it is going to kind of be sort of modernized in a time where, you know, things have changed significantly with technology, with um, social commentary, uh, with just the characters themselves and where they are and their personalities, but also because it is, you know, a part of this other kind of bigger world, we still have to include all this other stuff and it has to kind of fall into line with that. And whether, you know, we have to bring in characters that wouldn't make sense to bring back, even though they were fan favorites in the original or, you know, storylines that are familiar to kind of echo what happened in the past. Yeah. It does all feel a little bit contrived and, and fan service esque. And that's, that's the problem with legacy sequels and series. Yeah. And, and sometimes it works. I, I think like with, obviously it was Spider-Man, Spider-Man No Way Home yeah. or or the Creed movies I think that they in my they opinion work. Ghostbusters but right, we right. disagree talking about podcasts <laughs> um but but that's that's the that's the 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 risk you gamble I mean even again going with Star Wars you know like yeah. how much of it are you going to repeat or feel like you have to tie into the Skywalker saga instead of just 
you know, exploring a whole thing. universe. Yeah. Now, Dexter takes place on planet Earth and in one sort of like, you know, from Miami to You're Alaska. You're not going right? to go to some other serial killer. Yeah. Yeah. Like yeah. when you just when you said the Batista thing, like that makes like perfect sense where it's like it's like, oh, come on. Really? It, that that was a moment where I'm like, OK, I don't know about this. Even anymore. though I like David like, Zayas. So just, do I. It's just like he's underused in the series and he's just a plot device, really. But like it's just one of those things where it's just like, oh, my. It's the problem I had with the last couple seasons of Dexter and even some of the earlier stuff that you're talking about where it's just like either the people right place, right time or wrong place, wrong time or just it would never happen. Um, and it's strictly only because these characters are connected that his girlfriend and him are at the same conference where you're like, it's so unbelievable that it's just, that's when you start to see, oh, this is a television show and I get it. Like, but it, I was so mixed on the whole thing where I'm like, it, it like the Breaking Bad movie as well. That, that El Camino? Like, El Camino, which I forget everything that's in it because I'm just like it was completely unnecessary. And mind you, again, I if you were a huge fan of Dexter, um, I don't know if we needed eight or ten episodes. I forget what this was, but um, there's enough in there to be like, oh, this feels familiar. Yet they're trying to modernize it. Um, they're trying to make some like again whatever some of the stuff they have to say is interesting some of it's not it's a little messy it's a little like overstuffed but um the finale is like i wouldn't say just jump into the finale either right you kind of have to sit through those episodes and if you really hated the original ending like i do think this is a more satisfying like complete ending um where that last one i feel like completely shit the bed but um Either or, I'm like, I don't know if I needed this. Like, I was fine. We've gone 10 years with De without Dexter. And I'm like, I've made my peace with how he becomes a lumberjack and he goes to live in, whether it was Alaska or Canada there. Here it's in, is it upstate New York where he is? I forget. I think it's upstate New York because she goes into this city, like New York City for that conference, I think. So like the cat skills or something like that. Um, something like that. I'll, I'll figure out what it is, but, um, but it is just funny thinking about that again as well, because you know, or Minnesota, maybe these characters and, and storylines that have been kind of missing in action. We're, we're, we're even, I mean, even though we don't, we haven't watched this show, but like, look at the conversation with the sex in the city series, you know? Yeah. And, Nevis is watching that. Yeah. Like again, you know, sometimes it works and sometimes it's like, okay, well this show hasn't been around. Iron for Lake, a while. New York. It is New York. Okay. So yeah. And you think like some of these things work and some of them don't. And like, maybe the best way to approach it is either kind of deconstruct it the way that Twin Peaks The Return did or completely reboot it and do something different. Even if it doesn't work, at least it's, you know, at least you can say like, oh, we didn't just retread the same thing or try to, you know, correct, course correct what we failed on the first series and like even something like today watching the trailer for um bel-air the french the fresh prince of bel-air <laughs> dramatic series it, it it doesn't look like a it looks it looks like like something like you would see on thing. entourage in yeah. like like the like 
we we rebooted the Fresh Prince of Bel Air as a dramatic series. It feels like a joke, like an SNL. It does, right? It totally does, and it's it was weird watching that because it didn't look real. Where like at least with like the Saved by the Bell stuff, I haven't watched it. It kind of feels like it's in tone with what that series was, but also makes sense the way that they're bringing in younger characters to kind of be the focal point, so you can kind of bring in more of these you know, new elements. So it almost feels like they should have the made original Dexter's son is... the main character. And he is kind of, but I would say they're co-leads in the whole series, right? Like it is the new blood is very much like the show bringing in Harrison. And um, I just don't know how you, I mean, they did it in this and I just don't know if it completely worked because even some of the stuff that they do with him, which I've teased is just kind of like, but then where they take it is kind of interesting, right? That does address some of the you know problems I had with the Dexter character. So I'm with you where I'm like, I'm not against legacy sequels or, or legacy shows. or th- I mean, Cobra Kai, look, it is the perfect, exactly. like, the perfect example of like Spider-Man and Cobra Kai are two great examples of kind of, you know, uh, of doing that right. And so it can be done. It's just a way of, of doing something fresh with it, but keeping those characters and feeling like they're true to those characters. And um, it just, I don't know. I'm very, very mixed on, uh, on new blood. So um, there was something else I I meant to bring up during that conversation that uh, I missed out of. Maybe it was the trailer stuff with Bel Air, but I forget. But with Dexter new blood, the other thing is um, you said that. So like Harrison's, sort of reconnecting with with Dexter was yeah. almost coincidental. Um no, like So he was tracking him down. Yes. Okay, yes, that yeah. that narratively does make sense because oh, it does. Yeah. you have like a character who's kind of like actively his father abandoned him. him and he's trying to find you know who is whose father actually was, right? right? Because they they write off Yvonne Strahovski, was that her name? Yeah. Uh, yeah, her character. She's not in it at all. And then that's how they kind of have Harrison tracking down. It's like in the first episode or the second episode where Harrison, I think the first, um, uh, where, and then the whole show is about, you know, Dexter trying to actually, you know, be a father to this kid and um, while hiding his identity, but also, you know, lying about everything again. And, um, while also killing for the first time in 10 years or whatever, and right? getting a like, taste for it again. Um, Does he still have yeah. the, um, the ritual or the, like the, the, uh, microscope, uh, the blood spot. Okay. No, that's a thing that they touch on as well. Right. Like he doesn't need to be keeping creepy trophies anymore and stuff like that. And they play into that with, they, they always find someone who's yeah much worse than he is to make the villain. Um, and, just the stuff there i'm just like right in this small town where dexter happened to do this other thing that's connected to this guy and that's how he finds out about him i'm like it's just all convenient kind of silly. yeah and convenient um, that's a shame again I, wanna... I, I i liked hearing you talk about it and and I, to go back like the other thing i, I it's kind... not not worth watching right it's especially just, if you had watched though. the yeah. original series the one thing I also kind of liked about Dexter as well, it happened more in the later seasons, was they were bringing in more character actors to play either the villains or kind of integral supporting roles. Like you had, you know, we mentioned John Lithgow, uh, you know, you had Jimmy Smits, you had Peter Weller, Shauna Tosi, um, 
was there somebody else that was big? I, the, those last couple of seasons just mm-hmm. blur together. But mm-hmm. like someone like Clancy Brown, I really like. I mean, it's it's almost like a, a you know a, a an obvious pick that like he would play the villain just because yeah. he's always played the villain. But, and he's great. Yeah. He's great. But he just falls into some of those kind of Dexter villain kind of tropes and things like that, and some of that overwriting and and things that I'm I'm bringing up, but. Um, I do like Julia Jones a lot um, um, as Angela, who is his uh, girlfriend and the police chief. Um, she's great. And the kid who plays um, Harrison is Jack Alcott, who didn't we talk about him recently or did he get cast in something? I forget what it was. Or maybe I was just thinking about this show. Um, and then you have John Lithgow, appear in this series too but it seems so i remember when they announced that in the casting and i'm like it's just in like a flashback that we've kind of seen from that show so it's weird that they got him back for that instead of just using uh archival uh footage and stuff but um yeah it's fine and i i i think the end i'm glad the final episode kind of won me back a little bit because i was really not on board by then like i wasn't even really looking forward to the finale but then the finale i'm like okay you know what this made this series worth it and i you know it's um how many episodes it's 10 episodes which is a lot which how long I feel are like they like an hour okay um and it's not not worth watching if you were a, a big fan of the show so um, I'm curious to watch it, but like everything you're telling me almost sums up how I felt by the end of that first series run where I think like the first couple of seasons, and I think we'll talk about this as well with yellow jackets, where it's like, it really captures, you know, everybody's attention and people are addicted to it. And then it just runs out of steam by season three or it can't sustain itself or it's following maybe too much of the novels and not branching off and doing its own thing. And then when it does branch off and does its own thing, it makes the wrong choices or the decisions that kind of, you know, like the way that they handled again, dokes. Like I, I keep thinking like that would have been an amazing character to continue on. He was one of the best in, he the doesn't series. die in the books. Yeah, and and it's just it's, it's, or he it's might such a later, shame, but not you know? that early. He gets maimed and like, um, well, that's putting but, it lightly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but I even read some of the books. Like I was huge. I would loved Dexter. I read some of the comic series that they did. Like I, I was all in on that show. I remember in the first couple seasons, and then uh, like to the point where I went and read Jeff Lindsay's. Um, his name is Jim Lindsay in the, in the show, his alias. Of course. Um, so I remember anyways. my dad loving it because my, my mom did. And she was the one who got me into it. Well, it's, it's funny because like my dad is a retired forensics um, officer yeah. and he hates all that stuff because like, like police procedural shows and CSI, stuff. all that. Yeah. Like, cause it's, it's, it's all ridiculous. It's all, it doesn't make it's none of it is truthful. Even yeah. when you have consultants on it, but that was the one show that he said got kind of right with the kind of macabre tone okay. of yeah. like how forensics analysts and investigators work with Actually each other. Are. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. That's cool. Uh, anything else you want to talk about before we go into best movies of the year? Well, we'll, we'll go into best movies of the year and this actually connects to it because it's on your list. But um, I watched The Worst Person in the World 
Yeah. Which I think the thing I liked the most about it was the soundtrack. Um, I think the performances are uniformly good. I think that the um, direction is innovative and playful in certain scenes, but I do have some problems with the third one act. of the characters and how this person is brought back into the storyline. And that was the one thing that kind of soured me a little bit on the film. But other than that, it's, um, it's, it's, it's a well-made movie. I really enjoyed it. I think it's a much better film than um, uh, Joaquin Trier's last movie, which was uh, Thelma, which was his sort of telekinetic um, sort of horror movie, uh, even though he was trying to kind of branch out of what he normally is, is known for. But I, again, there's a lot to like in the worst person in the world, especially like the idea of, you know, we'll be talking about Bo Burnham's inside, you know, when you're turning 30 and you're still trying to figure your shit out and, and trying to kind of work through things. And I really like the character of Julie where she's not the worst person in the world. She's far from it. She's just somebody that is just kind of, again, but I even like that title of how you might think you are because of all the pressure you put on yourself or right, or, or like, feeling or, guilty yeah. for, for wanting to go in a different direction than, you know, the course that you're set. Like, I think exactly, the first yeah. scene of that movie and it's, it's, it's very novelistic and broken down into chapters, 12 chapters, 12 <laughs> chapters in a prologue and an epilogue. Um, but I what I like about sort of the, the, the first 10, 15 minutes of the movie, we see that character change her major multiple times when in school. And I think that that really encapsulates her personality perfectly. And I think that just captures how sometimes people are very impulsive, whether it comes to, you know, don't know what they want or where, like what they want in life or anything. And that's what I really loved about it. And I, I don't want to say like bringing back to the Seinfeld thing of that. She's necessarily flawed, but I just liked She's a complex she was character. Human. Yeah, she was human and complex. And that's what I really loved. I loved that performance. I loved how human it was and how relatable it felt like um, of just going through life and, you know, being indecisive or not knowing what you want or making mistakes or, or, and things like that. And it's been a while since Nevis and I watched it, but it's it, been like a you while. Said, the, sound, the soundtrack, the style, like, I, I don't have really, I, it's hard because I don't want to spoil it for people either, but I understand what you're talking about with that character in the, in the kind of last little bit of the movie. Um, but that didn't bother me. And I felt like, you know, as a learning moment for that character, like I see what you're saying, Eric, when we talked off air for it, but um, I liked it for that character, even if it's at the expense of, of someone else. But um yeah, I, I just I, – I really, really love that movie and yeah, it will pop up again um, and I don't need to talk more when it does come up. But, but it's yeah, worth your time I, and, and it's absolutely, a film yeah. that is going to be released in the US through Neon um, the first week of February. I don't know what MK2 Films here in Canada is doing with it yet. I think it will probably be – sometime in mid-February if theaters are open in Ontario. But yeah, it's 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 a very well-made film and it's also very funny and poignant. And, and there was a moment in the movie that rang so unbelievably true. Um, and I, I'll be fascinated to have a conversation with my brother Kyle on it because there's a scene where um, Julie goes to visit her father who, you know, they don't really even have that much of a relationship to begin sure, with. Sure, I get what you're and talking about, that, yeah sums up yeah divorce so perfectly like i was yeah. like oh my god this is this i is thought you were gonna home. bring up the the mushrooms but <laughs> no that scene's that scene's a yeah. lot of fun and playful and there's a coffee break yeah. sequence that's great um again yeah. the soundtrack is amazing i've been listening to uh 
uh, Bad Feeling by Cobra Man uh, quite a bit. That, yeah. uh, I've been listening to Todd Rundgren, uh, Healing Part One. Yeah, it's 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 a really good movie. It's it, like the sum of its parts. There's so much to like about it. It's just that third act that kind of rub me wrong a little bit but again i feel like it's how i feel about licorice pizza you kind of feel about right. this movie where i like i rewatch licorice pizza um and i'm sure another movie that will pop up on our or certain people's best uh, of the year and that's why i'm making this comparison where um i feel like i feel the same way where i'm like there's so much I love in this movie, but there are a few things that I can't, I'm so hung up on that stops me from loving it. And I felt the same watching licorice pizza and whether it's a, about certain characters or certain you know, plot elements or whatever, but um, from a technical aspect. And I think it's a weird thing where I think I liked the movie even more watching it this time licorice pizza yeah but then i also disliked the things i disliked even, even more, more because they they, they stand out yeah and, and that's how i felt watching the worst person in the world and i haven't rewatched it but i probably will sure. because again there's a lot of stuff in it that is that is really wonderful and the other movie i thought a lot about that i liked more also than, great soundtracks yes yeah I, oh absolutely <laughs> the other movie that i thought about um quite a bit while watching it as well that I think is a little bit better that's supposed to be getting a release in North America this year that we both really liked is Ninja Baby. And like yeah. the idea of another film that's like, you know, Scandinavian culture being very progressive, but also like the animation uh, or the, you know, the, the, the co uh, comic book artist sort of plot of yeah. Ninja Baby kind of being not too dissimilar to uh, the Anders uh, Danielson uh, lie character, who's also really wonderful mm -hmm. in um, Bergman Island uh, this year and, and has been in um, many of uh, Walking True's uh, earlier movies like Reprise and things like that. So again, a lot to like and, and, your, your your comparison to licorice pizza is 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 completely apt where it's like the stuff you love you completely embrace but the things that kind of turn you off or make you kind of critical you're going to understandably be more critical of those things because there's so much that you like and those things that you don't stick out even more mm -hmm. it's exactly watching it uh licorice pizza this time and and i watched it with nevis um uh, cause she hadn't seen it yet. And, um, she was kind of in the same boat as well. Um, and Kyle was too. Kyle, Kyle saw it, um, before everything closed down and he's like, there were parts that I loved, but, um, he, he had more problems with the structure of it all. Like okay. he didn't like the shaggy dog. I don't want to talk for him either, but like, no, same with Nemus. Yeah. yeah. I don't want to talk for her either, but uh, it's just, I, yeah, it was like, Scene by scene, I found myself going like, I absolutely love this. And then the next scene I'd go, I don't love this. And Which then, is like, like an I'd anthology go, movie, right? Yeah, it almost feels that way, even though it is, you know, um, it's not, it's more of a hangout movie. And, They're and vignettes, like that. right? Like, they are kind of vignettes, even if it's more um, structured in a narrative uh, linear way. That's what I was going for. And have the same characters constantly throughout, throughout. Them, now yeah. you can say that wes anderson's the french dispatch does have you know the, the the main group of reporters throughout but they are the the stories are tonally different and and what have you but i can understand that criticism as well to licorice pizza another anderson uh with with, with paul thomas in in that like you know maybe certain scenes not only because you know they're problematic but 
because maybe some some scenes are stronger than others, even though the through line is consistent compared to an anthology movie. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And um, yeah, I just found myself, we listened to the soundtrack over again. The cinematography stood out even more just that, you know, even though we watched it on a digital screener, just like that texture that film brings to it and the, and the, uh, just the entire, from a technical standpoint, the movie's immaculate and like certain sequences or characters or performances. I'm just like, fuck, this is so good. Um, that talent the, agent scene is amazing. Is incredible, dude. And one thing I noticed more this time, which made me like the movie more, um, cause I was having this discussion also with other people who have seen it and you know, my problems with the age gap, which I've seen other people bring up. I still think, and I know you, you love the movie, but you're in agreement that that uh, the racist joke just stands out. And is well, and the age gap and, thing too. Like, I I think for yeah. the most part, Paul Thomas Anderson keeps that relationship platonic, and he's actually yeah. saying something interesting about Alana Heim's character and sort of where she is and why she. And has that's to have what it. I saw more out of this time. Sorry yeah. to cut you off, but no, I, no. I, I totally saw it more from you know she's not perfect and you know and there was a great article i wish i had the name that neva shared it to me i'll try to uh, tweet it or retweet it and reference back to this podcast but um i just i noticed way more like i'm like okay i don't think the movie is necessarily saying what she's doing like is not saying it's okay or anything like that it's just and it's something we talked about in our original review it's just presenting it to you right and you can take it for what you want. <laughs> like, yeah. and it's not necessarily saying it's a good thing. It's just, this is what it was. And this is what I'm presenting to you. And like, um, I, I saw that more and there's even some, like with the music, some unsettling moments or it feels uncomfortable. And like, I noticed these things more in my second watch where I'm just like, it does feel, feel intentionally off a bit at some times like it's not all just happy-go-lucky it's the 70s uh anivis i think just shared the tweet with me by lauren wilford um who wrote some thoughts on licorice pizza uh, it's loading a great movie about a woman embarrassing herself and she wrote it on Letterboxd. so go check out oh yeah uh, i saw that wilford. um uh, last um, week yeah, it was yeah. and um thank you nevis um, so, and I thought that was an interesting perspective where it's just like, I think the movie isn't necessarily, and I have problems with the ending without spoiling it, but like, I don't know even now with the ending, if it's really saying like, yay, like kind of thing. I think where, it's more cynical than anything yeah, else where like yeah. the care, like where she is, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting conversation to have. I, I think yeah. you can look at it in multiple ways. Um, I, I I think that the criticism with the age gap is very valid and understandable and I can and I, I know why like it's it's something that like you know if if we're going to criticize Woody Allen movies for doing it you know Paul Thomas Anderson should be fair game as well or yeah. anybody that does that but it's also fascinating to think like it's the same thing with Red Rocket but Red Rocket does take this weirdly more ethical stand with it and divides that line i think a little bit more clearly than licorice yeah, pizza agree. but both of those movies are also very observational and they're not yeah. force feeding you either which is interesting because again like in the hands one is more clear of like this is bad what this person is yeah, doing yeah and the, the other movie a, makes it yeah yeah in the hands of a filmmaker that is like 
you know, more kind of spoon feeding you like that. It would be kind of direct where like if you want to see a really great film about sort of a predator, uh, an older guy sort of, you know, going after a, a teenage girl, there's a really great film called Smooth Talk with Laura Dern and Treat Williams from the late 1980s. And that film is really interesting because, again, it kind of takes the point of view of this young girl kind of being you know, seduced by this older guy, but this guy is like truly like, bad, tr- awful, repulsive. Yeah. But in her, from her perspective, he's alluring. Yes, you know? exactly. And, I mean, it goes back to Lolita and, and, and things too. Right. Yeah. So like, I mean, it's not a new thing that Hollywood has tackled and they continue to, for some reason, uh, go back there, but you know, it can be interesting. It's just in this, you know, that was one of my problems where I'm like, I don't know how I'm supposed to feel about this. But in my second watch, I was like, I still didn't love it, um, that element of it. But I started to go, okay, maybe he's not necessarily like approving of of the, the things that are happening, which I, he's just kind of being like, it was the 70s. This is the stories that this guy told me and I'm presenting that to you. Yeah. <laughs> and you feel how you want <laughs> about it. Well, we even talked about, I mean, you know, you discovering Seinfeld as much as I like Seinfeld and Jerry Seinfeld and, and, and Larry David, Jerry Seinfeld after the show was finished, dated, dated a, 19, a, seven, a was, 17 year old. 17 well, she year met, old. she met him when she was 17 and I believe they didn't start dating until she was 18, but yeah. that's yeah. Not great either. Yeah. Um, which, yeah. So, I mean, it is a weird thing with you know, this obsession with Hollywood to kind of like, I don't know if that was like necessary for that movie. That's what I mean. Like, I don't know if they focus enough on the age gap other than it just being an age gap for them to have an age gap. And I know I said age gap a lot there where I'm just like, I don't know if the movie's really taking a stance on going. It's my favorite version to, of the gap. I need to say something about this where you could have, made them closer in age or something like that, where it wouldn't have been something that people needed to talk about. And then you could have just focused on that kind of free flowing kind of hangout vibe that the movie has. So if you weren't really going to take a stand on it, why have it? And maybe it is what I'm saying of like, I was told these stories back then it was more, accepted you know or or something like that of like people didn't question it it was just like she has that one conversation with her friend of being like is it weird that i'm hanging out with them or no her sister Sister, yeah sorry um and she's like no not really and like and again you're still a young person in your mid-20s but like that's not a great excuse for that either right like it's that you can anyone can make the excuse well you're still young when you're 25 or she might be 28 there's that kind of thing there but i don't know man like uh, i don't want to focus too much on it but going back to the original point to worst person in the world and this like i think there's a lot of similarities in our opinions on those two movies where they're two movies that i think objectively are very very well made um it's just we have some issues with some of the the way characters are portrayed and 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 things like that or used yeah. um in certain ways as a whether it's a plot device or for another character or something like that so uh, both worth watching. Absolutely. So if you haven't seen either movie, like the one thing I found with licorice pizza is like even watching it the second time and I don't love the movie. Like I gave it a three and a half again, but it's still a good movie. Like a three and a half is still a good movie. I'm like, I think it's a movie I would buy on like 4k 
um, it's very watchable and, and want to watch again. Like even if I'm like, I don't there's I have issues with it. I still feel this need to tell people to watch it, or I want to watch it again once it's on 4K, um, or see it on 70 millimeter because I don't. Again, I'm pretty sure our screening was not. Yeah, I think it was um, and digital. I and I would have liked to do that. Um, Makes me also want to go back. Like I've been, and I might do it this month. Is rewatch Everybody Wants Some. Oh God, what a movie! Yeah, uh, everyone go watch Everybody Wants Some too. Which again, another hangout movie doesn't necessarily have a plot, um, but I think is close to being a perfect movie. I just I love that movie so much. Like check it's your just, pillows. <laughs> it's so good. I might watch that soon too. Okay, let's do it. Um, I actually made time codes. So hello, everyone. If you're just skipping right to the best of the year uh, part of the podcast, we're an hour and 43 minutes in, and we're finally getting to our topic of the show. Uh, we're going to go over not super in-depth, but Eric and I both posted our you know top 15 films of the year in our uh, Barack Obama-inspired Comic Sans uh, here are our favorite movies of the year in no particular order, but they were in alphabetical order. I think there um, is one film that is both our number one movies of the year yeah. or last year. We should save that. Yes. And then we'll talk about, but we are in agreement. Like, so if we want to name one film, the untitled movie podcasts, uh, film of the year, we do have that movie because we're in agreement. Where everywhere else we have a lot of similarities in our lists, but they are very different lists. So like we've done in years past, we'll kind of just um, – do you want to do a, a top 10 and then give – I think we should um, just read the list. I, the I think this year – I yeah. think it should just be as freewheeling as cool. Licorice Pizza's uh, yeah. plot structure. Um, let's do that. Sorry, I'm just taking a time code. The best. This You're the, the best you come around. For. No one's ever um, going to take you down. So, yeah, let's just do it then. Let's just go over our 25. I know you have a list of your 400 movies you watched this year or whatever right. in order. You don't need to go through all 400. No, I'm, I'm just going to go through the, the, the list that you uh, made for me, which I appreciate that. By oh, you're going to do that one. Okay. Yeah, I'm going to do – Because I was thinking yeah, you let's, were doing let's the same do, as well. I was going to actually count down to number one. Oh. Like I was going to do it in – a ranking order this time. Oh, interesting. Because I was, people... I wasn't, I was going to be like, Ooh, okay. The, I was just going to want... name them off on the hmm, list, except for the, the number one movie. And maybe talk give about some, that. and then maybe give some honorable mentions that didn't make that yeah. 15. Yeah. Okay. Let's do that. Um, we can talk about our number one film and then we'll talk about our lists in, in general. Yeah. Um, so Eric, you kick it off with some honorable mentions. So stuff that didn't make your top 15, but you want to give a shout out to, okay, and let me, right let me back. get to this, uh, uh 21 with you for a second. Okay. Uh, so I'm looking at your... this now. Um, yeah, I think that 2021 was a I'll really right good year for film to the point where, you know, I, I saw almost over 300 films and I found, uh, myself kind of struggling to, you know, cut it down to 15. And so films that didn't make that list, I'm looking on my letterbox uh, a review right now or, or, or list, um, no ordinary man. Um, you have uh, Q Vadas uh, Ada, uh, the world to come. Um, and at 13,000 feet, I think is really great. Um, Gunda, um, 
Riders of Justice, uh, which is excellent. Uh, the Novice, uh, Shiva Baby, Test Pattern, Tick Tick Boom, Violation, Moffy. Uh, let's see what else did I skip? Oh, Attica, um, I think is really excellent. Uh, quite well done. Um, just going through this now. Uh, Beans and uh, yeah, and Malignant. Yeah, those are the films that I uh, really enjoyed quite a bit. So did you go list. through your honorable mention? Oh, yeah. yes. And The honorable Lost mentions. Daughter is another one that almost cool. made my list. Um, I didn't hear it, but I'm sure I've seen your list before. So I, um, we all go over my honorable mentions and we can talk about a few of them if you want. Um, so I put my top 15 or 10. What did I put? I think it's 15. My... Oh, interesting, because I feel like there's a couple of ones here that I didn't shout out. I'll vamp for a sec. Yeah, there's 15 on your uh, best of list. Oh, okay. Then um, I'll go what's not in that top 15. Okay, cool. Um, So in my honorable mentions, I want to shout out uh, Barb and Star go to Vista Del Mar. I rewatched it again on uh, over the holiday break. And uh, it's one of those movies where I think there's movies that I rated higher than it when you're looking at my top. 25 films of the year when I do on Letterboxd, which you guys can check out as well. And Eric has a list of every movie he watched last year. Um, Maybe we'll try to copy and paste those into our um, untitled uh, list. So you guys can check out those if you want, but it was one of those movies where I'm like, I have to give this movie a shout out. Cause like, it just, it's one of those movies that I feel like will grow on me more and more. And I feel like I will revisit cause it is so absurd and stupid and, um, I just uh, have a blast watching it. And, uh, even that second time was uh, a lot of fun. Um, and Jamie movies, Dornan too, like you God, know, like that turn. That in Belfast, him. like I don't even have Belfast in my top twenty-five, but um, he's great in both movies, and it really kind of made me a Jamie Dornan fan this year. Um, and I never necessarily doubted the guy. I just, you know, I wasn't, I didn't watch the 50 shades movies and that's all I really knew him from. I know that people knew him from other things and he's been good. The at fall. Stuff, but the, yeah. Yeah. Um, I want to give a shout out to Ghostbusters afterlife Encanto, which I actually liked a lot more the second time I watched it because I was completely lucid this time. Um, the first time we watched it, I, I was like, man, this feels like a completely different movie. Um, I, I just, I really connected with the story this time and, um, and the music I actually grew on me. Um, I wasn't maybe as sick of Lin-Manuel Miranda when he brought me back around with another movie you'll see on my, my top 15, but, um, also pig, uh, plan B, which was really early in the year. Um, that I feel like just kind of came and went. Um, I, I really, really enjoyed Plan B. Uh, the Novice, I think, is an excellent movie we saw back at Sundance or South By? South By. South By. Um, I think Isabel Furman, fantastic. And and that movie, really unsettling and, and interesting and, and really, really cool and under underseen. I know it just kind of came out, but... Um, I think is excellent. Uh, I really liked Nia DaCosta's Candyman. Uh, I liked The Kingsman a lot. I know I'm kind of uh, in the minority there. Uh, the Lost Daughter, I agree with you. Um, movie that kind of came out of nowhere for me. Really, really uh, both performances in that movie and the direction I just thought was excellent. 
Um, and the Suicide Squad grew on me quite a bit where I've been itching to rewatch before Peacemaker next week. Um, where uh, Peacemaker, one of those shows that I had, I really didn't have that much of an interest in. And even Suicide Squad, the first time I watched it, um, I was like, I liked it, but I don't know if I loved it. But then it grew on me. And then all these reviews for Peacemaker, I'm like, all right, I'm 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 in on this show now. I I was waiting for reviews, but I was like not expecting people to say some of the things that they were saying. So, um I'd say those movies are the movies that didn't quite make my list, but um I kind of really enjoyed of last year and even more than that. Those are just kind of a handful. And I know Eric you started this when I walked away, but I felt like it's a movie a, a year for movies that kind of went under the radar and I think there's like a lot of good stuff from last year in 2021 where I had a harder time than usual um, cutting my list off at 25. And for usually when it comes to the end of the year, it's usually four stars and up are the things that are in contention um, on Letterboxd. And sometimes, you know, a movie might be three and a half, but you, when you're doing your best of list, you want to give it a shout out instead of something else you gave a four or whatever. But uh, I found this year there were more movies that I was just like, oh, man, these, this is a good movie that I'm not going to put on my list. Um, and I found myself doing that more often than not uh, this year. And I was like, well, underrated year for movies. I think it was really solid all the way around. Yeah, it's it's like, again, you know, Nicolas Cage in uh, Peg. You just need to know where to look, you know. Oh, Pig for... also. I didn't – I don't know if I said You pig, did. You but... did. Yeah. Okay, I did. You yeah, just need okay. to know where to look for those uh, those little – Truffles. Truffles, you know. Do the truffles truffle are good, man. Are you a truffle man? Uh, they're okay. I, I, I think maybe I find they're strong. Them... They're a, a little yeah. – it's an acquired taste Truffle for oil sure. is terrible. Oh, I love uh, – dude, when – Croatia is a big truffle country. So like when we were there a couple years ago, we were in truffle, like truffle country. And like I had truffle everything, dude. Like every dish was just filled with truffles and it was delicious. It was so good. Um, Okay. Uh, are, do you want to go back and forth with top 15 or these lists are public? We can just kind of read. I think we should just read then, them off except for our then, number one and then just kind of talk yep. afterwards because it would, it'll – We'll probably be here a lot longer if we keep going back and yeah. forth. Cool. Uh, I'm going to just go through my list then, and then you can go through yours. So uh, I'll do every movie except for number one, but I think people knowing Eric and I probably know what our number one is. Uh, Green Knight, uh, Spencer, uh, Malignant, uh, Shiva Baby, Red Rocket, not my parents' favorite movie. I'll get into that story. Um, Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings, The Worst Person in the World, uh, Tick, Tick, Boom, Coda, No Time to Die, The Humans. I'm probably one of the biggest The Humans fans, putting it that high on my list. Well, you donate to The um, Human Fund every year. Yeah. Uh, Petite Maman, uh, The Mitchells versus The Machines, and Spider-Man No Way Home. I think those are 14 of the best uh, movies of the year or 14 of my favorite movies of the year, however you want to kind of frame this. It's a good uh, list. Eric, and and to your point, it was kind of hard sort of curating this list and putting together 15 because even some of the movies that I didn't even give honorable mentions to, like The Card yeah. Counter or St. Maud, yeah. um, had a lot of stuff in them that I did like quite a bit. And so – Again, it shows you that, like, you know, the rating thing to give it a four or a five or even a three and a half or three doesn't necessarily mean that you don't 
love or dislike a movie. It's just means yeah. that you know it's like it's kind of gauging what you're maybe more interested in. But you know, mm-hmm. like again, there was a lot of really good stuff. So I'm just going to read my list right now. So uh, Bergman Island, Drive My Car, Flea, The Green Knight, Licorice Pizza, Memoria. Uh, the Mitchells versus the Machines, Petite Mama, Pig, The Power of the Dog, Red Rocket, The Souvenir Part Two, Summer of Soul, and T10. And great list as well. And like, I feel like there's a couple movies on there that didn't quite make my list or even my honorable mentions that I, uh, we talked about Licorice Pizza, Power of the Dog, a movie that um, I've seen twice now, um, love a lot of the cinematography and performances and stuff, but just didn't quite, um, uh, make my, you know, top 25 or, or, or something like that. But there's some crossover there that I love. Like I love both of our love for Mitchell's versus the machines. I go back and forth with these top three movies that I have. And I think I'm pretty sold on the number one. I like that we're, that's what we're putting our stamp on as the best film of the year. Um, but my two and three being, Spider-Man and uh, Mitchell's versus the machines. Uh, I go back and forth. Like I loved Spider-Man and I was riding off that high, but I think when I look back at things is like Mitchell's versus the machines, I think is a, a also a very, very special movie and, and easily the best animated movie of the year. And um, you guys can listen to our review if you want to uh, hear us rant about it. But One like, of the funniest I, films as well. Yeah. It's and rewatchable. I watched it the night after uh, I first watched it because I had to show it to Nevis. And I was just like, it it was unexpected, um, but I knew like produced by Phil Lord and Chris Miller again, it's kind of a lot of that Spider-Verse uh, team at Sony Animation who's doing really, really interesting things with their, and finally finding, I think, their style, which I think is really, really cool. Um, and Petite Maman, um, I'm just saying some of our crossover, Eric, and then you can talk about some of the other films that, um, don't show up, but, uh, obviously I think the perfect runtime for a film. Oh, beautiful. Um, beautiful. Just no, it's great. I mean, I love long movies too, obviously, but like, and there were a lot of long movies. Good movies are good movies, right? No matter if they're 67 minutes or Or three hours long, like drive my car. Yeah. Which is a movie I've been dying to watch. It's just it being three hours long, I'm trying to find the, like, I need to like be in the right headspace for that movie. Cause I want to give it my full attention and uh, I just haven't got to it yet. So it could have possibly made this list and it, it might still. And you will uh, watch it before time, the critics yes. choice deadline. Yeah. But Which, it's, it's, when did they change that deadline to? I, I don't know. I'd have to, I cause have to we'd have to again. see when the award show is now. Right? Yeah. It, yeah. But the thing with drive my car, I was in that similar cat, not cause I didn't want to see the movie just because it's three hours. So it's just literally yeah. starting the film. But once you start watching it, yeah you really don't want it to hard yeah it's hard to stop yeah uh that's good man and then uh i think some of the other crossover red rocket which we've talked at uh nauseam about how we both love that except and and doesn't like it simon rex's performance my mom so here's this story my mom told me not to tell this but i'm gonna tell it anyway um red rocket i i i they they watched it and uh they had to to leave they they were just like matt this is uh, my mom would have stayed and watched it she said but my dad was the one that was like i can't do this anymore and i'm i'm bummed i recommended it to them because i forgot the story of my dad also turning off florida project and 
I was like, oh, he just doesn't like Sean Baker. And I'm like, my mom was like, oh, I would have finished watching it, but your dad wanted, your dad hated it. And, um, but my mom was also like, but I didn't like that. He like went back to talk to the very young girl at the donut shop. And I'm like, yeah, you guys probably made the right choice. Like maybe Sean Baker's just not for you and, or definitely not for my dad. Cause he, they didn't make it very far into either movie. And I totally forgot that they turned off Florida project. So when I recommended red rocket, um, I'm like, I got to just remember okay, not everyone. It's not for everyone, especially maybe not your parents. So um, I recommended Red Rocket for them and that was a bad decision. But they did like things like uh, Spencer and uh, Coda and No Time to Die, my dad loved. Um, The humans they were mixed on. My mom really liked it. Um, But my dad was like, it was very artistically shot. <laughs> like, okay. Mike's just like, hit too um, close to home. <laughs> no, I mean, they did see a lot of the stuff that I was saying in there, but about my family. My mom died at the Weight Watchers joke and, and stuff like that. But anyways, that's the Matt Rohrbeck family hour when it comes to best movies of the year. Because I give them this list, right? And then they kind of go through. And my mom was like, it was one of your favorite movies of the year when it came to Red Rocket. I was like, yes. <laughs> Um, but I think they also fall in that category sometimes of like my dad especially needs to have someone to sort of maybe like cheer for in a movie. Like right. he doesn't like movies about unlikable protagonists, um, even if they're compelling. Um, so yeah, Red Rocket didn't work for them. Um, and sorry, Eric, go over some uh, more of the movies you want to shout out. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I think you already mentioned it, but like Green Knight is another film that was yeah. on both of our on lists of that our lists, um, yeah. is one of those movies that, you know, you keep thinking about David Lowry's one of those guys that, you know, goes into any genre and either reinvents it or, you know, plays within the milieu so perfectly and, you know, makes it his own. And it's such a weird odyssey and you know i wish more fantasy movies were were like this that if you know the ones that are getting made within the studio system are kind of following you know like uh you know whether they be franchising them or what have you but like this is like again visually speaking and it was also our first film back in the theater last year so it kind of has that kind of sentimentality and and nostalgia weirdly as well but it's just so well done and and Again, just thinking about certain moments of, you know, Dev Patel just oozing movie star mm-hmm. charisma on the screen and, um, you know, the the practical makeup and, you know, aesthetics that are used throughout. It's just it's it's one of those films where. Again, it's not going to be for everybody because it's yeah. Super I told them slow. not to watch it. I was like, "Don't watch this." One. No, no. But um, it, it's a great Christmas movie, and so maybe it'll be a. a, a yearly... I've been itching to rewatch it. Have you rewatched it? No, but I have it? the 4K because yeah. I bought it in LA when we oh, were. Right, uh, right, yeah, when we were right. traveling. Um, I got a couple 4Ks recently. Yeah, there's a couple things that like the slower movies. I I like. Memory is another one that I do want to. I re-watch. did really enjoy, but didn't make my list. Either. But I'm also afraid to rewatch it because I think the power of that movie is, is that watching first watch. it in theaters. Yeah. Because I yeah. think with the Pitch of Pong versus the Cools films, there is that's some... a hard watch at home. <laughs> yeah, it, even though, like, again, it's deliberate and it's by yeah, totally. by design. But I think, like, when you're you're sitting in a theater, you're completely immersed in 
the sound design of the film and the narrative and it being a very loose narrative and just kind of almost dreamlike hanging out kind of movie. Um, it, it works really well. And it's also weirdly his most accessible film because he has, you know, Tilda Swinton in the lead. Um, and again, accessible is a strong word for, for him, for him. When you <laughs> look know, at his know, other I movies, yeah, I it's... totally agree with what you're saying. Like it's still, it's still, pretty much esoteric but um for for him it's 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 like his you know like his spider-man no way (laughs) exactly you know like it's his big blockbuster (laughs) um bergman island i think is one of the the, the best written films of the year i think it, it plays with sort of our understanding of you know art in an interesting way of how we value somebody you know, for their work and their vision to the point of, again, franchising them, but also poking fun at um, elitist fandom as much as, you know, elitist poke fun at sort of, um, you know, uh, pop culture fandom in general. So I think that there's something really interesting there. I think the performances are really excellent. Great movie, yeah. Um, I really loved Flea, uh, which was a Another wonderful movie, movie that yeah. kind of began uh, the year at Sundance. Um the Mitchells versus the Machines is amazing. I, my favorite performance of the year is Nicolas Cage uh, in Pig, who is both tender and vulnerable and proves that he still has it. And I keep thinking about that restaurant scene specifically. God, it's so good. Um, he's just, he's amazing in that movie. And I think that that film and First Reform will make a great double bill one day of sort of being yeah. these weird sort of like meta movies that are about both the industry and in the case of Pig, because First Reform, like, looking at like the churches like the smaller indie church going against the big conglomerate sure, church yeah, is almost like yeah. blockbuster cinema versus you know the yeah. the art house and how the art house is dying and you know what's left are these kind of like bigger multiplexes then with pig you have a guy who you know started his career very strong and kind of created this image of himself and this folklore and became something almost like a joke and then left the mainstream industry to go and do VOD films and the way that Nicolas Cage's cook character comes back into yeah. civilized society to see what the world is like and you know him trying to grapple with grief and loss and actually have that confrontation and 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 because he's been putting it off for so long so uh and the souvenir part two another movie that kind of plays with the meta aspects of uh the first film and is so wonderfully put together by joanna hogg and sort of telling a semi-autobiographical um narrative but also kind of playing within the context of being a first time filmmaker or being a film student, I think is a lot of fun. Um, and it sticks the landing perfectly. Summer of soul quest loves uh, documentary um, shines a light on this, you know, series of concerts in the summer of 1969 that did not get the spotlight because, you know, one, it was predominantly an African-American and Latin based uh, concert. And also because of Woodstock happening around the same time, it eclipsed it. But to see that, footage again for the first time in in 50 years and the way that it's it's put together is so moving and fun and just seeing like stevie wonder play the drums in the opening sort of uh Oh yeah, there, there was a lot of really great movies. There, like, there was so many films worth 
checking out whether they be uh, VOD releases or, um, you know, returning to the theater this last year and then, you know, leaving the theater again. So it, it was it was a very melancholy experience overall and even just like doing TIFF this year again and, and going to press screenings in late August, but then also seeing some stuff at the, the beginning was, um, you know, interesting, but also kind of nice to have some normalcy going back and, 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 you know, as much as you are hopeful that things will get better, you know, you have to understand that there's probably going to be a lot of stopping and starting when it comes to, um, you know, getting back to something that resembles what life was like before COVID. Yeah. That's why it was an interesting year overall. Right. Like, um, I made a list of movies that I would have loved to have seen in theaters, right? Like I'd love to do a program at Lightbox or something called not in theaters or something after this is all over and just program a series of movies that never got a chance or maybe had a very limited uh, theatrical run because of everything that was happening where um, even some of the, the stuff like I, uh, Barb and Star, I never got to see in a theater with a crowd. Like uh, Candyman, never got to see in a theater. The Novice, never got to see in a theater. Malignant. Um, Malignant, I would have loved. Like, I'm so bummed I didn't go to that uh, Midnight Madness screening that Peter set up uh, after TIFF or on that last weekend of TIFF where it was like an unofficial uh, Midnight Madness screening where he introed it and had that crowd. Because, like, that would have been the perfect Midnight Madness movie. That would have been a blast. Like, I mean, I had a blast watching it with you, but um, even Shiva Baby or Worst Person in the World or Tick, Tick, Boom. And uh, I would have liked to go see – and I, I did have a chance with Tick, Tick, Boom and stuff like that. So that's my own fault and it did play uh, at Lightbox. But um, Coda, another one that uh, I watched on uh, at Sundance. Yep. So um, – the humans like again these are movies that uh, petit maman uh, mitchell's versus the machines i would have loved to see on a big screen right and like those are it's so interesting so many of these movies and look at our number one movie of the year which we will get to it's the untitled the official untitled movie of the year we're going to get to um it's the consensus go, title of our, our yeah our, our list everything else a little rearranged and every movie you mentioned eric were like on the cusp of being like, it was exactly what I was talking about. Like basically everything you had on your list that didn't show up in mine were like those movies that I wish I, I mean, I could easily do a top 50 of the year or a top 40. And a lot of those movies would be on there. Um, like the ones that I really liked, but there was something, I just liked this group of movies more. Um, but yeah, there's so many of these movies that i didn't even get to see in a theater. Um, well, even going back is... to not last year now, but almost two years ago, like something like Nomadland, I would would have yeah. loved to have seen it in a theater. And sort of had a chance because it did lim- play at Lightbox Limited, but it was it, it, we were in this weird time, right? Where you didn't either, if you'd seen something, you didn't want to go out of your way to go to the theater to go see it again, right? Even Black Widow, which isn't on my list, at all or anything like i liked it um as a mid-tier mcu movie but i didn't see black widow in theaters which is wild like the first mcu movie 
I think the only one I haven't seen in theaters, <laughs> like literally the only MCU movie I didn't see in theaters. I'm trying to think if there was another one, but I don't think there is. No. Um, I mean, Morbius and, just got moved yeah. even though it's not MCU. Um, yeah, I know. Uh, and I do, I think if it, you know, plays Cinesphere down the line in an IMAX thing or, or something like that, I will end up going. And I had plenty of chances to go do it. Cause when, when theaters came back, Black Widow did play theatrically for a little while, but um, a weird year. But yeah, like if you look at uh, Spider-Man theaters, Mitchell's not, Petit Mama not, Humans not, Bond, yes, Coda, no, Tick, Tick, Boom, no, Worst Person in the World, no, Shang-Chi, yes, Red Rocket, yes, Shiva Baby, no, Malignant, no, Spencer, yes, yes. we did see that in theaters, Green Knight, yes, Pig, no. no did we see that in theaters no no, it was, it was a link um yeah yeah uh lost daughter no Encanto, yes ghostbusters yes plan b no kingsman no Candyman, no novice no suicide squad yes barb and star no so it's like pretty split right yeah which i think is really interesting um so yeah interesting interesting year but a, a good one i think any movie i would suggest for them you know there are those weird outliers where not for everyone but i think the majority of these movies I would highly, highly recommend. And I'm sure you guys listening have, have seen the majority of them. Uh, some of them you haven't had a chance, like worst person in the world or petite maman, which are these weird ones that, you know, I internally struggle with of being like, should I put them on my 2021 list or 2022? But uh, ultimately they're eligible for awards this year. We saw them this year. I'm like, okay, I'm considering it sometimes based on where the movie it's home country. If it was released in that country, I kind of go by that rule, but it kind of changes. So um, that's why things like Petit Maman and Worst Person in the World are on these lists and things like that. So uh, let's get to it, Eric. We have a consensus number one choice uh, for the untitled movie of the year. And it is, uh, it might to some people be like, you bastards, that's not a movie. That's a cop out. But it's like when people put Twin Peaks The Return as their number one film of the year. Our number one film of 2021 is Bo Burnham's Inside. And I, I think we're in complete agreement of that. Yes. He turned 30. He fought Jeffrey Bezos. He talked about mental illness. He did it all in his little home or like a second home behind or beach house behind like, his home. Yeah, pool house or yeah. whatever. Yeah. Um, uh, it's it's a movie that it's a movie it's a special it's a stream of consciousness it's performance art <laughs> yeah it's all these weird things put together but it perfectly encapsulates the last two years of how everybody has been living and summing it up in a way that's universal but also specific to him but also weirdly calling himself out because of the luxuries that he has making a Netflix special while, you know, still being able to work and also, you know, being entitled, being both successful and a cis white male. Um, it's a funny musical. It's so well written um, in terms of the music numbers, incredible cinematography and, and lighting. <laughs> yeah. And again, like just going back to like, if somebody were like, I'm thinking like, okay, so my nephew Ivor is three months now. And when he is of an age where, you know, he'll learn about this part of history. 
say and 10 to 13 years from now. Yeah. Whatever. And you'll want to know like, oh, well, what was life like living in during COVID? I'll, I'll, I'll be like, well, you know what? There's there's a lot of really powerful documentaries. There was one that um, was released through Neon and National Geographic called The, uh, the First Wave. Um, but a movie that I think also kind of like tapped into a lot of what people were feeling personally and emotionally is that, and that would be the film I would recommend to him or to anybody that, you know, future generations want to know. Like so how Bo people, Burnham's inside. Yeah. How yeah. people yeah. were feeling um, during this period and being open to having that conversation about uh, mental health awareness and, and just what people are going through and struggling with and just being cooped up inside. Yeah. Perfect. You, you nailed it. I don't really have much more to say other than like Jeffrey, uh, Jeffrey. I I've, I've listened to that album basically on repeat for the last year. And I remember just eagerly anticipating it. Cause like I, I've been a Bo Burnham fan for a very long time since his early youtube days i saw him perform live at i think it was second city here in toronto when he was still like a teenager and um i've just completely loved everything he's done from you know eighth grade a few years ago to his numerous albums he's put out his youtube content which is his performance in promising young woman yes um and i remember not really. No one really knew anything about Inside. He just randomly said, "Like I have a new special dropping on on Netflix, like in a couple weeks." And I remember everyone going, "Holy shit! New, new comedy from Bo Burnham." Because we hadn't got that. He kind of transitioned into acting and directing, and it, even that was pretty scarce. And um, yeah, putting this on, and I remember just sitting down with Nevis, and we were talking about it the other day of being like, we came home from. Uh, something we were out for a while and it was like one of those things where, uh, you know, I think we were just a trip for the two of us, obviously, because you couldn't really do much during that time. We were exhausted, but we're like, oh, the Bo Burnham specials out. Let's watch this. And just being completely captivated and just like laughing so hard throughout the whole thing. But then also being like mesmerized with like, it's just, he's one of those guys that you're just like, fuck, I, I wish I was as talented as this person. <laughs> and like, to be like, to come up with the music and shoot it all himself and edit it and just uh, go through that, which is both intentional and unintentional of like someone who's obsessive over something and cares so deeply, but also wants to reflect on his previous work and, and why, you know, when it gets very personable, uh, personal and talking about why he stopped performing stand-up and like you said tackling mental health and just tackling you know if you listen to a lot of the lyrics which are very fun and playful at times but he's talking about uh, uh really really interesting things about the world and someone who's taking this moment of time and really reflecting on it and how we are as, as, as a human race, I think is, is really, really interesting. And I've just listened to that album on repeat and I've almost been scared to go back and rewatch the special. Cause like it was so, or the film, um, because it was such a special experience mm -hmm. that, that first time that I watched it and I've been wanting to go back and I've listened to the album over and over and over again, but, um, it was something just stuck with me and was my favorite thing of the year um, for the entire year and nothing really ever even came close to it. I thought it was 
um, as close to perfect as you could get from a from a movie and a special or whatever you want to call it. I really do think though, like it felt theatrical and felt like a, again, like you said, a perfect uh, picture of what we were going through and what everyone was going through collectively. And just this one person who puts himself through it to showcase that um, I thought was like, I've been off for a year from a full-time job and been inside most of the time. And I'm like, I wish Again, there's just people who, you know, got it. And he's just one of those guys where I'm like, fuck, man, I wish I had like 2% of the talent that you have because like um, from every element of it, it just feels like almost immaculate. And I just think it's so good. It's so good. Well, it's also just interesting to think about like, you know, one of the songs is 30 and it's about him turning yep. 30 and putting those pressures on himself. And there, were, I think there were a lot of movies this year that kind of looked at that and sort of the pressures that we put on ourselves. I, I think the flip side of the coin for this movie in a, in a way is on your best of list and um, was in my honorable mentions is tick, tick, boom, where Jonathan Larson, you know, yeah. part, part of that plot is him, you know, hitting this sort of milestone age wise and thinking like, well, what do I have to show for it? And then comparing yourself to somebody else, like, you know, the late great Steven Sonheim, who, you know, yeah. did all these amazing things before hitting 30, or then again, the worst person in the world where, you know, that character turns 30 and still feels that she doesn't have her, you know, life together. And, you know, it feels guilty by choices she makes. And, um, you know, we, we talked about licorice pizza. It's just, it's interesting that we're, we're getting movies from filmmakers who are probably, you know, a lot of which Around are in their the same in, age or in their late thirties, early forties, looking back at their time in their thirties sure. and thinking like, okay, well, what was expected of me then? Am I, am I supposed to be in this place now? Am I putting these am I putting too much pressure on myself and being too introspective and, and bringing this anxiety to a place where it doesn't need to be, but also again, being a perfectionist like Bo Burnham is um, there's just so much that's, that's very relatable in that. And, and again, like in you're, all of that, and... you're, you're also, you know, to your point, frustrated with how talented he is and how, like, <laughs> yeah. again, it, it's like Jonathan Larson in Tick, yeah. Tick, Boom, where he can take like any, you know, mundane sort of observation or thing and turn it into a jingle or tune it, turn it into a song and sort of like the, what, what's the cost of being somebody who is a genius, but also still a human being and how they affect the people in their own lives and, and things like that. Because Bo Burnham, again, very talented guy and, and having interviewed him for eighth grade, um, he's very self-deprecating and. Yeah, absolutely. He, yeah. Sometimes he's, the smartest people are, though. Yeah, yeah, and and super tall. Uh, that, that's the <laughs> other thing about him that is just like he really is like a giant when you when you meet him in person. But when you think about how these characters are struggling within a world that is either period based or modern, still still somewhat modern, because obviously Tick Tick Boom takes place in the early nineties, but you're thinking to yourself okay well at least you're not the only one like there's there there are other people that are you know in your shoes and the people that are suffering just like you in one way or another are people that are also very talented you know and people yeah. that you think have their shit together or that are you know 
have stability in their lives, whether it be financially or, um, you know, the support of family and friends, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're not going to have their problems. And I think that that's very weirdly reassuring that someone like Bo Burnham is able to be so open and and candid um and sharing those and put that into his art yeah yeah and again the really songs cool. are just catchy like white the women's ca- instagram catchy but also saying something but some things like white women's instagram isn't really saying much and is kind of a very but it's not just mocking um, as well like there is something that there is a moment sweet. in there that is very sweet right and i think that's why each song has that or each performance in in the film has that element that isn't just one note where you where you think it's going, like it'll go a completely different direction or um, even from the visual standpoint, like for a guy who had this small pool house, how he was able to use that space in different ways or come up with different bits or uh, songs and how that was going to be portrayed in the, in this film, I thought was like, again, yeah, you're, you're very jealous and you're just like, you bastard, you're, you're so smart and talented that it's almost frustrating, but like in a good way. Um, and even something like the humans, like I like that one talking about that theme that we've seen through a lot of this. And I think that's why a lot of movies that you love, you see yourself in it, or you, you can connect with it on an emotional level or a, from a, you know, a metaphorical level or anything where like even Steven Yun's character in the humans, I, I really love that conversation where they ask him about him and him being in his mid thirties and saying like, I don't know what I want to do. I'm going back to school and and things like that. Like you can see a pattern in a lot of the shit that I enjoy. I think where you see yourself or you can relate to a lot of the stuff and that's the same thing goes to tick, tick, boom. Or when I see a lot of my family in something or, uh, and even you don't even necessarily have to see yourself one-to-one like it just can be thematically like with a character and and stuff like that or you get things like malignant where you're just like i don't see myself in this at all but this is amazing <laughs> <laughs> you go gabriel <laughs> uh but yeah inside is is phenomenal and well that's um, where that's where gabriel's from inside yeah <laughs> i love it good year for movies i think so yeah um I can't wait to watch Inside again. I can't wait to watch a lot of the, these movies again. And I'm a sucker for rewatching stuff. I need to get moving. I'm both a sucker for rewatching stuff and a, a glutton for new release films. So um, January is always that weird time. So it's fun to reflect and maybe revisit a few of these movies that you really liked or show them to other people who haven't watched them yet. Um, if you can safely um or catch then, up on stuff that you that you have missed like yeah, it's exactly it, like, like january into february is a really good time especially for a lot of the international films where like you can that's what i'm you know watch something like my drive my car on, yeah. or like t10 or things like that where you know they, th- those movies maybe they didn't play in your area or they didn't you know they were only sort of major cities and now they're mm-hmm. available on vod and you can watch them from the comfort of your home and feel safe in doing so or if theaters are open and you do feel safe to go you can go but it's it's interesting to think like you know we're film critics and we have a certain amount of um, opportunity and access when it comes to a lot of these films that when we watch them and we, you know, come to the end of the year and we, we talk about these movies, a lot of these films haven't been seen yet by the public. Even, even the films that have been released, like a lot of the movies that get limited releases, like I think of like, the year that little children was released, which was 2006, the Todd field film, 
that never came out to Durham. I remember having, it was the first time I went to Toronto to see a movie, like, because like, I just literally, it it didn't come to uh, AMC. Now it's landmark, but like, yeah, I remember doing that for a few things back in the day too. Yeah. yeah. And so, so you have to, you know, take into mind that something like drive my car, you know, with the exception of the light box, isn't necessarily going to play everywhere. And even something like red rocket, you know, Sean Baker is very adamant about, the theatrical experience so you know a a lot of these movies people will still be catching up with even into february and march yeah which is i think why um it's important to kind of share this stuff and say you know where people can get these things and i totally agree with everything you're saying and that's why like i love uh my parents going through these lists or um Nevis watching some stuff with her that she missed out on because we went to screenings or something like that. Like I get joy just sharing this stuff with people and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't for people. Right. And like whenever you show someone one of your favorite movies of the year and they're like, I didn't like that. Or I'll see like, um, obviously like it, it's all subjective and everyone like what you like and, and don't like, but it's always kind of like when you suggest something to someone and then you see them, after either rated on Letterboxd or, or they talk to you and they're like, ah, it didn't really work for me. You're like, ah, fuck. Like you just, you want to hit it out of the park when you're like recommending stuff to people. And again, what's going to be on my list is going to be different on Eric's list. Kevin McGuire and Rihanna, who are on the show that follow them on Instagram. They're great. Um, follows, uh, Kevin posts every one of his Letterboxd, uh, re- uh reviews in his story, which I'm trying to kind of do this year too. Um, just for again some people might also be like man no one gives a shit which i'm also like fair <laughs> if you like but, doing it who cares um exactly and then if one person goes oh shit matt gave that a, a four and a half i'm gonna go watch that and i'm like all right you gave not the necessarily my five out of five <laughs> not necessarily i guess it is kind of my job but uh, anyways i'm rambling now um i don't i, I we're not gonna we don't do worst of lists, but I will say the one thing I did notice quite a bit, and we've talked about it on the show, um, is there were more disappointments than I was expecting um, last year. You know, movies like False Positive and Benedetta and Dune, um, and on my end, something like Ghostbusters Afterlife. So, mm-hmm. like, it, it was just interesting that, like, to kind of equate that, you know, even if you love a filmmaker or, or, you know, somebody that's within the industry, a writer, an actor, they're not always going to hit it out of the park. And it makes you love the work that you, that you do love from them even more. And it does also still make you excited to watch what's next. Cause as much as I love someone like Denny Villeneuve, I really feel that, that Dune is not a self-contained story and that it really can't be judged until we've seen Dune part two and watched that whole as, you know, as a whole, it's not a complete work, just part one. And then with Benedetta, as much as, you know, we both love Paul Verhoeven and, and specifically, you know, his time when he kind of um, came to America and made movies like Robocop and flesh and blood and um, starship troopers and things like that there was just something that was like a little bit disappointing with sort of the satire of it all. Another movie that I didn't like that, that you liked a little bit more than me was Adam McKay's don't look up. So mm-hmm. I think there was a lot of films that like, I wouldn't 
you know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to say like, oh, you know, like the obvious thing, like Cosmic Sin is the worst movie of the year, which it is. It's terrible. Yeah, but, but the worst of lists, but like, I think it's fair to talk about movies that, you know, did disappoint you. I yeah. mean, we kind of went over a lot of that with our reflecting on, and I think that's where those disappointments come from is like when we put together a list, like our most anticipated, you know, most anticipated, it's like when one of those movies, uh, like and a lot of those movies didn't hit for us or like a good amount of them didn't um that's when it becomes but then there's the other way around where there's movies that are complete surprises right that you had no weren't even on your radar like something like coda which i didn't talk enough about like i wasn't really on my radar at all and and i think most people or malignant (laughs) Uh, malignant another one where like i i like james wan everyone knows my love for the saw movies and, and and things like that but um, it looked conjuring adjacent to the point where I'm like, I don't know if I need this. And I had no idea what I was getting into with that movie. And I had a blast watching that with Eric where, um, I wouldn't have said I was that excited for it. I think even when you came over to watch it, we were both like, all right, let's, let's watch this on HBO max or Double whatever. bill of cry and, macho and malignant. <laughs> but we did hear from people that like, no, it's, it's pretty fun. And I'm like, I had no idea what to expect. And that was such a pleasant surprise. So I think it goes the other way too, right? Not to try to end this on a, a negative note, trying to take it positively. But like, I will agree with you that I don't love those really clickbaity worst of the year lists like i feel like they're very lazy and just kind of they i can see in someone at a magazine or a website their boss's boss being like now you got to write one of these because it gets clicks right negativity gets clicks on the internet i mean that's what social media is yeah so all you need to do is worst movies of the year list and put one movie on there that people really genuinely liked and you didn't and you're gonna get a ton of clicks on that because they're gonna be like wow you included come on come on on your or or whatever like even a movie that's not great but like most people enjoyed throw it on there or ghostbusters or something to be a contrarian to a certain yeah as well and even that like and i'm not saying you're being a contrarian with ghostbusters but that would be a good movie to put on like a, a worst of the year list, even though you might, it's not one of the worst movies of the year. It's, it was a big disappointment to you, but I think like you said, cosmic sin, like there are objectively bad movies oh, yeah. that you can say are the worst movies of the year. But even then that feels you don't have to dwell stupid. on them either. Yeah, yeah. Like, I think it's fine in a conversation to bring up stuff like nightmare alley. Another one of those that I felt like was a, a pretty big disappointment. Many saints of Newark wasn't necessarily a disappointment for me, but I think, cause I just have no, I never watched The Sopranos. House maybe of after Gucci Seinfeld. was um, not good. Yeah, things like that. Don't Breathe Two. I would put in that category of um, a huge disappointment because well, thinking I, with the first I, one being uh, yeah. again to to your a pleasant point, surprise. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I, I wouldn't put Space Jam. Me, I would put Space Jam: A New Legacy in there because um, you know the nostalgia I felt for um, the first. Uh, Space Jam movie. I'm like, okay, let's see what they'll do with this. And Eternals, I would awful. say, was pretty disappointing. Yeah, for a huge MCU guy like me, and like Chloe Zhao, um, and Chloe Zhao, like I think that would be a big one. And then on the pleasant surprise side of things, I, I named Coda, and you named Malignant. Well, the Suicide Squad um, as well. I mean, yeah, like, that is a rebound if there ever was one. <laughs> um. Just from that first movie, not necessarily yeah. James Gunn. No, but, no, no, no. Like, just, yeah, yeah. just from like. You know, they they 
Warner Brothers finally made the movie that they wanted to, which was, you know, Guardians, the R-rated Guardians of the Galaxy film with the guy who made Guardians of the Galaxy, and it worked. And I think that third act is actually kind of amazing. Um, mm-hmm. And it's really just a solid film. Like, I think it's it's one of those movies that because of the, you know, people going back to the theaters in the summer, but also it kind of getting that day and date release in the U S maybe didn't help it, but it is one that the more I think about it, the more I like it. And again, the visual effects, I think like, I think, uh, Starro is incredible. Yeah. Like that I do want to rewatch it. I'm going to rewatch it this week, I think before, uh, peacemaker. And then on the disappointments again, Halloween kills, I think is a huge one. Cause I loved Halloween 2018 so much. Um, and that goes into the whole legacy sequel thing that we were talking about earlier too. Right. Um, I'm trying to find if there's another one. I'm just looking on my list pleasant, now. On my list. Oh, surprise. the tomorrow war. Yeah. The tomorrow war. It we're was... two people that really liked the tomorrow war where it didn't quite, <laughs> it didn't quite make either of our lists or honorable mentions, but like, um, I thoroughly, there's one that was absolutely a pleasant surprise where I was not expecting, to enjoy that movie as much as i did like yeah. um again not something that's kind i i've forgotten about as the year has gone by but like um i still think is a really really enjoyable um movie and, and showed me that chris pratt can still be a movie star super mario bros 2022 let's go <laughs> you're baby. gonna die on that hill <laughs> Another one that I was really disappointed with was Annette. I think that was one that I was really right. excited about. And right. I think the music just didn't work for me at all. And it was kind of disappointing. Um, the Guilty, I didn't really love. The Matrix Resurrections, I was disappointed by. Um, Antlers wasn't quite... I watched it this year, but Love and Monsters, it's a last year movie. But I watched it in April of this year. So Pleasant surprise, um, yeah. Huge pleasant surprise there. And I know you gave a shout out to uh, it the other day. As yeah, well. I was just thinking about like, um, you know, when, when when it comes to the award season, and I was talking to this uh, or talking to Nathaniel uh, Rogers of the Film Experience, who was on Cinema Scene recently about like good plug, the, good plug. the homogenization of award season where everybody kind of picks the same like 10 films yeah. that are kind of declared the movies that are worthy of nominations instead of like, you know, critics groups and bigger awards bodies, maybe picking the things that they absolutely love by following their heart instead of, you know, being strategic and sort of aligning with what the Academy will probably eventually pick. Yeah. And, you know, we were talking about certain films that it's like something like that, I think is really interesting that that got a visual effects nomination. And it was this small little movie that didn't really even, you know, get much of a push by Paramount in in any way whatsoever and still was able to get a nomination. And, you know, the effects work in that film is incredible uh, for for what it is. And so, like, those kind of things are always the ones that are are most exciting um, in terms of, like, you know, the anomalies of, like, oh, like, you know, this group actually kind of went sort of left instead of going right with everybody else. And uh, usually the screenplay categories are, are pretty good for being sort of imaginative, but then, you know, like, I mean, we, we didn't cover the golden globes obviously, but it was funny, like seeing like, yeah, we their... didn't mention them at all. And that was intentional. <laughs> yes. But it, we're going to make fun of them in this, in this little last little bit here, but like their um, social media um, sort oh of categorization God. of for someone story. who, 
just in general, dude, like it, they deleted some of it and re-uploaded some, but like that was the most egregious one or the mo- the funniest one where it's like laughter is the cure. West Side Story. I mean, like, to be fair, we did laugh at like, Ansel Elgort's reaction. Yeah, to we wanted to find that screen cap and post it, but um, what a, yeah, I mean as someone who used to work in, in social media marketing, like I can just see that whole thing. They hired an agency cause they weren't doing an award show this year. And the agency was like, we'll write clever copy. And then I know the feedback was like, well, you have to include the entire um, award name in the tweet because even that looked obnoxious and stupid where it's like they had to have the entirety of the award name so they couldn't even say what movie people were from because there's a 240 character limit on twitter because they had to have a quip at the beginning because they're like oh we want you to have like a funny pun or a fun line and i like i can just it's giving me like flashbacks to marketing anxiety yeah anxiety flashbacks of being in this meeting and getting the feedback from the uh hfba and like um and just the way that that i i drafted a tweet that i didn't end up tweeting um just being like okay we everyone was like we need to do something different award shows aren't working i don't think a tweet thread is the way to go like i just don't think it works because i mean there's probably better ways to do it but you should have just sent me a pdf uh press release in an email and and everyone could have talked about it on their own um if they wanted to yeah if they wanted to which i don't even think it's worth uh giving them the time of day and this might've killed them for sure this year. I don't know. We'll see. I mean, they'll try again next year, but um, it, it just kind of came and went. And, and I think people were just mostly dunking on them on Twitter. Uh, and rightfully so like, again, yeah. like just the way that those tweets were structured and just, they were hard to read yeah. and they were just sometimes didn't make any sense. <laughs> like, like literally didn't make any sense. Well, the West Side Story thing, thing just it's, it's I, dude. I also because they they would have had to draft the tweets before they knew the winners, right? right? So whoever they hired for this thing, probably not even a movie person, and they're just a marketing person, right? And then they go, "Oh, it's best comedy movie or musical." So I'm just gonna draft. Uh, comedy copy and we're just going to drop in the name of the winner when we're told who won right and they don't double check it or anything which is wild and it got out there where they would have just I don't know how it got approved or maybe there was two versions because I saw the other one they just changed like music is the best medicine or something they changed it to um and it's just generic shit like that where they might have had two versions of it they're like well if a comedy wins use this one if a musical wins use this one um and they just use the wrong one but um in general it was just convoluted by the wording of everything where it was like it was so they had to put so much into one tweet where the 240 characters, if you use that much copy, you're not really going to get as much engagement. And then um, the way that they structured it of having to have the entirety of the uh, award name in there was just, it was like, you blink and be like, what are they saying? And the way that it was structured, you're like, who won? (laughs) Like (laughs) when someone's name is buried in the middle of this or a movie is, and it's just, it was, it was ridiculous. West last Side Story is a comedy now. Like it, it almost. I didn't like even a- follow it. So Power of the Dog 
we're going long. We're going to wrap up in a second anyway. But like Power of the Dog won Best Drama and then West Side Story won Best Comedy Musical. Hilarious. Well, it's Um, also funny to think like – I don't know any of the acting awards who won. Sorry. No, I don't either. I was just thinking though like in terms of Golden Golden Globe coverage or even red carpet coverage in general has never been great. And I I tweeted you that that still. But like there was that one year that E! covered or, or was sort of the main sort of coverage for the Golden Globes red carpet. And they had all these like fun facts that would come up. And one of the fun facts was... Michael J. Fox had uh, was, was diagnosed, diagnosed with, with Parkinson's, Parkinson's in 1991, and I'm like, who yeah. proved that? <laughs> like, who saw that and was like, it's let's go. It's mind boggling sometimes. Like, I to use the term fun fact and then share that is, is obscene. And you saw a bit of that in the in the tweets last night. Like, like I feel like they uh, hired the same person who did the fun facts for E. For, for the golden and again tweets. we love i i love award season i love the end of the year and celebrating the best movies of the year we just did a whole hour on it here right and um i i love the oscars every year as silly as they are and how overlong and kind of boring the award show is like i'm still into it every year and i like to kind of go oh what's gonna get nominated who's gonna win like it's fun to be part of that right like even if it's kind of silly and it doesn't really matter but um yeah it's it's even weirder the last couple years because of covid and everything right so i'll be curious to see how they do the oscars this year and when is it supposed to be like i know critics choice got punted i was supposed to be there yesterday and you know i was supposed to be in la right now but um i think it's critics choice got punted to end of february early march and then Oscars are still beginning of March. Let me. I think so. Matt looked that up, but I think the nominations are sometime at the end of January. SAG nominations. Oh, it's later this year. It's March twenty seventh. Oh God. For for, we're gonna be uh, so. I mean, we were sick of it last year because it was very late last year. Yeah, but this is also like SAG. So as we're recording this, uh, the SAG nominations will be announced um, on Wednesday. Oh, Wednesday. So yes. this will be out a day before um, yeah. SAG nominations. Before but those will be telling for the... Uh, at least acting yeah. nominees. Yeah. That's interesting, man. Yeah, I like awards. Gabriel for of, Best Actor. I don't disagree. Anyways, thank you all for listening. Another jam-packed episode of the Untitled Movie Podcast. Uh, looks like we're back on that almost three hours every week, which we should maybe tone down. <laughs> but we had the couple big end-of-year podcasts with the most anticipated, which you guys can check out uh, last episode, episode 109, um, if you've uh, sat through this long, if you want another three-hour podcast. Um, we also have some reviews up right now for um, – spider-man no way home uh both a spoiler cast and a spoiler free version we got news today that uh no way home will be on digital at the end of february february 25th i believe and then we'll get a 4k release probably early march uh for spider-man no way home so check out those reviews uh we mentioned we have a spoiler free review for cobra kai 4 uh the kingsman licorice pizza we talked about it a lot and red rocket uh, on this show, but you can check out our individual reviews for those as well as Nightmare Alley, uh, Don't Look Up. A lot of the movies that are on our lists, we reviewed all of those. There's a few outliers that we didn't get to based on the Christmas vacation and shutdown and all that kind of stuff, and we might revisit them, but um, I think we talked en- enough about a lot of those movies on this episode. Um, we'll have reviews up um, 
for some of the things Eric mentioned, like we're going to get a little bit more creative over the next couple of weeks over on untitled movie reviews. We'll have a bear with us. We're still figuring out what reviews are going to come out when, but like Eric mentioned, we should have a tragedy of Macbeth review out for you this week for its Apple TV plus release. Um, we will also do a yellow jackets season one review, uh, after the final episode next Sunday. Um, we'll also do a book of Boba Fett review, whether that's after the, we talked a lot about it on today's episode, so yeah. maybe we'll hold it and just review the whole season when it's done. And we'll just maybe talk about it casually on this show as we're watching. Um, and then the other things like we haven't talked matrix resurrections much. Like I think we were holding that, but then it kind of came and went. And it was a weird time because it was over the holidays and then the, with the theater shut down and, and things like that. So we might get around to Matrix. I still think we could have an interesting conversation about that. Well, but, we could because um, it is getting a, a VOD premium v- VOD release in Canada. And I believe it's the uh, January 24th. Yes, in a couple of weeks, I think. So yeah. maybe we'll hold it for that here in Canada because like everything's shut down now. So a lot of people, though, I know a lot of people in the U.S. have watched it on HBO Max and, and things like that. And uh, there's a great kind of funny in review uh, with those guys. Um, Paris Lilly joined them on that, and he's a huge Matrix fan. So it was interesting getting his perspective and going, okay, cool. Uh, we're not we're not insane like this. They all did not like the movie either. Right. <laughs> and Paris is a huge matrix fan. So, and then going back um, as mentioned at the beginning of the show, um, if you go into our archives, we have reviews for movies that are getting VOD releases like see for me and Italian studies. So if you cool. want to know what we thought of those films, you can go back and, and, and listen to our thoughts when we saw them uh, at the, at the film festivals that we were streaming last year. Mm-hmm. Uh, One stop shop for everything. Head over to our letterbox, which is untitled underscore movies we're always updating it with new reviews new um ratings um new podcasts video versions which you can get on youtube or the audio versions are all up there so uh one-stop shop is untitled underscore movies on uh letterboxd uh thank you all for this uh massive massive podcast uh for listening or watching we really really do appreciate it and as always my name is matt Rohrbeck. you can find more of my work around the internet but mostly at untitledmoviepodcast.com and you can follow me on all those social medias at matt Rohrbeck. and i'm eric marchin you can find more of my video reviews at em6211 uh it's but <laughs> it's you can find some of them over on Twitter at EM. It is true. It's it's true. Uh at rogerstv.com slash cinema scene and on the social medias at EM6211. It's the first episode <laughs> back, guys. Uh, and there's not much to cover. We now. still haven't talked news. Well, you know, I, I can't I, mean, I we can't did a little bit. We screen. talked about turning red and it going to Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. You know. And I wanna see Scream. I wanna see Scream. It's gonna be so like, hard to avoid spoilers. I know. And like uh, God. Um, I know, and I really want to see it. It's getting good reviews. I just rewatched the first four and like, I'm just like, man, I liked ready or not a lot. And I'm like, uh, I'm so bummed that like, we're not going to be able to see it, but we will have a review soon. Uh, until next time. You're simply the best, better than all the rest. <laughs>